And hello, welcome back to season one finale of Skeptics and Seekers. I am and have been your host, David Johnson, the Skeptic, joined by the other guy. Yep, I'm Dale, the Christian or Seeker. And today, in the third chair, you, the audience. You, the audience. No special guest today. It is Dale and myself as God intended. And today we're going to make our final impassioned plea for the hearts and, dare I say, souls of you, the listener. You, the ultimate skeptic. You, the ultimate seeker. We are just the vessels. Presenting our side uh, of an age-old argument. But the real skeptics and seekers are the people who listen to the show who consider the arguments, and who move their lives in one direction or another because of the truths that they find. And it has been a privilege to be a part of helping you find that truth. Before uh, I get into my argument, I'm going to turn the microphone over to my partner in crime to make a few announcements and say whatever is on his mind. Um, sure. So, so, yeah, just as we're bringing season one to an end, um, just wanted to, to let you guys know, uh, keep keep your feeds open. Um, you know, stay subscribed to Skeptics and Seekers. David and I may um, throw in a couple bonus episodes throughout the summer um, as solo episodes. So one thing, for example, that I have coming up is I was invited to come on to as a guest on the Right to Reason podcast, which is um, an atheist broadcast by Robert Stanley, uh, where they discuss religion and politics and that sort of thing. Um, so, so here's what he he uh, heard me on the dogma debates, and he thought I was absolutely fantastic on the show. So, uh, take that, Tara. Um, but <laughs> sorry, um, but yeah, he he said he would love to have me come on his show and discuss the same topic. Uh, he was really impressed with my thought experiments and how I approached the Abraham test. Um, so, so yeah, that's set to be recorded on June 1st and I'll, if I can, I'll try to, to upload it onto Skeptics and Seekers or at the very least put a, put a link to, to the show uh, for you guys to check that out. And, uh, I also want to just give a special thanks to all of our very special guests who have occupied the third chair, uh, this, this year. And, um, I won't try to call them all out by name, lest I forget any, and um, they are not forgettable. Uh, they all gave uh, excellent uh, expositions of their ideas and positions, uh, accepted the pushback uh, with grace, uh, and thank you all for making this season uh, very enjoyable and informative. So with that, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, I agree in terms of the guests. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who, uh, who came on for both doing me a favor or, or the ones that David reached out to. Um, yeah. You guys made the show, a, an amazing success and brought a lot to, for us to consider. And, and just so you know, we still have some that we just didn't get to this this year, <laughs> and so uh, second season we've got we've got more guests um, uh, lined up, and um, 
I think it will be good. Although, in, in the second season, I don't know that we will do as many guests. Quite frankly, uh, our guest list got away from us <laughs> this season a little bit. Uh, there was Dale and I had a lot planned to talk about that we just didn't get around to talking about um, because we, we did have guests that kept coming up. And it was delightful, uh, to be sure. But I, I think that we will probably actually trim that guest list a little bit uh, next season. Uh, to make sure that we can cover all of the subjects that we want to. So once again, thanks to um, thanks to all of the guests. They were all my favorite guests. And um, so with that, I am going to start us off. This, um, this plea of mine does not really reference any arguments that Dale has made throughout the season. Uh, one of the things I thought about doing is, is just going back through all of Dale's arguments informing a rebuttal against them. But I don't actually think that would have been the best approach. We'll, we'll do a little bit of rebuttal in this show, to be sure. But I wanted, to, I wanted to speak directly to you, the audience, and not just to those of you who have made your decision, but those who actually fit the definition of skeptic. Uh, those who are either Gnostic or on the fence, even even those on the Christian side who are dealing with doubts, uh, those of you who are unsure, those of you who are looking for answers, I want you to take a moment to talk to you. And so uh, the theme for my talk for the next few minutes is to thine own self. Because I find that one of the one of the prevailing constant uh, drum beats in Christianity is that self is the problem. If you have a problem, it's self. It's your sinful self, your selfish self, your wrong-headed self. It's it's self, and the Bible is always enjoining us to deprecate ourselves in some way. And I think that once you have deprecated yourself, you've opened yourself up to all manner of harm. And I want to see if I can't talk to you and avert some of the harm that you're opening yourself up to when you deny yourself, as the Bible repeatedly tells you to do. I do not want you to deny yourself. I want you to embrace yourself. I do not want you to loathe yourself and doubt yourself, but to love yourself and be a proud, yes, proud and confident individual to thine own self. Five points. Be true to your life. Christianity demands that you commit suicide a sort of spiritual suicide that you lay down your life for your belief, that you take up your cross, which is an instrument of death to follow Jesus, that you empty yourself of yourself to make room for something else. Suicide is bad. Spiritual suicide, equally bad. Do not 
listen to someone who tells you that you need to die to yourself in order to live for something else. When someone tells you you should kill yourself for Christ, <laughs> you really should tell them to get off their lawn, uh, get off your lawn. This is a hard no. The 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 suicide cult of Christianity uh, that tells you to die to yourself is most unhealthy. Be true to your humanity. Christians are fond of speaking of humanity in deprecating ways, and that has leaked into our society. We say things like, well, we're only human, as if to say that we are less than something that we should be. But I embrace only human in that we are only ever human. That is what we are. We're not human plus something else. And I, for one, am not a human striving to be something ontologically higher than a human. There is nothing ontologically higher than a human. To be human is to achieve the pinnacle of this life on earth. And I am glad to be it, and you should too. There's nothing else to attain outside of humanity. So embrace it and appreciate it. Contrary to Christian propaganda, this world is most definitely your home. It is the only home you will ever know. <laughs> this is your home, this world. And I, by this world, I would expand that to this universe because who knows, maybe someone will come up with a starship and we'll live on another planet, but it's still a part of what uh, people consider this world, this is our home. And any other notion is just childish fantasy. You should, contrary to what the Bible says, love the world and make the most of everything in it. And avoid all who bring you any version of the following. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Screw that! This is your home it's a great home, and you should embrace it. There's nothing wrong with your humanity. One of the tools of religion is to make you doubt that your humanity is a good thing so that you can strive for something other than. There is nothing other than. Be true to your morality. This is the this is a ticklish issue, I know. But let me tell you, the moral argument, I know it well, is misnamed, as it does nothing to tell anyone what is or isn't moral. It just kicks the can down the road. The Bible itself does nothing to clarify what is moral. It only confuses the issue. We don't need God to tell us that slavery is wrong. No one ever need read that in a book. We know it's wrong, and if someone thinks slavery is okay in any context, then we know that they are either wrong or evil, 
or psychopathic. Now, the God of the Bible had a moment where he thought slavery was okay. We know that he was either wrong or evil or psychopathic. Either way, he is utterly disqualified from telling us what is right or wrong. Whatever moral intuition you reach out for, it should never, under any circumstances, be that guy's. Be true to what you know is right. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to get it wrong. But you're going to get it right way more often than the writers of the Bible. Be true to your senses. You know what? That fire in your belly is dyspepsia. It's not confirmation of a biblical truth. Calling it a properly basic belief or the internal witness of the Holy Spirit does not make it anything different or more reliable. Now, we know that our senses can deceive us, and we should find ways to test what they are telling us when they tell us extraordinary things. When your senses tell you that you are flying, check the label on your medication before stepping off of a tall building. You might just be feeling floating because of the chemicals. Find a way to check the intuitions of your senses, even if you think you are getting messages from a still small voice to do something that is socially unacceptable, you should find an external way of checking that. Even if you think an angel has appeared to you to tell you something uh, tremendous, find a way to check that. Even if you think that you are getting an internal witness of the Holy Spirit, you know, you could ask him something like, can you give me the formula to the drug that cures cancer and write it down? Check it. Find a way to check it, especially when your sensors are telling you things that are extraordinary. You know, the ancients were superstitious to the extreme. We know that. Why on earth do we trust their testimony that's tied to their senses when their, t their senses are telling us them things that our senses don't tell us today? They routinely conflated uh, conflated internal visions which seeing, with seeing actual things. Now, we don't trust the ancients when they claim to have encountered other gods and other magics. There is no reason that we should trust the ancients' senses when they talk about the adventures of Yahweh. We need to be true to our senses, not the senses of the ancients. Be true to your search. And here I'll pause. So be true to your search. Let me just say a few words about the search. This season, in, in one sense, has been all about the search, all about your journey. Whichever side you happen to be on. But there are some things that could disqualify your journey. That could disqualify your search. There are some things that might, in fact, make you not a true seeker. I don't have a formalized doctrine of true seeker versus not true seeker. But I, I do have a few thoughts 
first of all, make your search falsifiable rather than philosophical. If you're looking for answers, make sure that it's something where answers can be found. Don't just make your answers based on who has the smartest sounding, untestable argument. So your search is is possibly not a true search if it cannot produce falsifiable answers. Make sure that you search for things with real answers that can be verified. Not every question you can ask is a question for a true search, in my opinion. An example of this is, what happens to us after we die? Well, I understand that a lot of people have existential angst about dying. But that question assumes that something happens to you after you die. So it's more question-begging rather than an actual question that leads to a true search. But let's say that 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 question drives you to a search and and you just have to know and you can't live life comfortably without knowing. Well, ask yourself, who is an expert on that (laughs) that you could could ask? And that if you found an expert on that, how do you validate their answer? It's it's not a question that you can actually validate. (laughs) And so that kind of disqualifies it as a true search if it leads to answers that can't utterly be validated. And then finally, when you find your answer, I know this is going to be a little controversial to both sides. When you find your answer, stop searching. Stop searching. If if you are on the, the seeker side of things, and you find after a good search, a true search, that there is in fact a God... You should stop searching. You should accept the consequence that there is a God and then move on to the next uh, part of your, your journey. And you should only revisit whether or not there's a God if you have reason to doubt the results of your first search. If someone brings up something new, something that you haven't considered, something that puts uh, things in doubt, otherwise, accept your search and move on and live your life. And the same is true for the non-believer. If you are a skeptic and you have done your search and you have found to the best of your ability, you have found that there is no God, stop searching and live your life. And you should not resume that search until there is something that makes you doubt the results of your first search. What my interlocutor would have you do is keep searching forever. But here's the problem. And this is the problem with all of these things that I've listed as a search. If you do not make your search falsifiable, then what you were really doing is confusing a search for a faith position. Because at the end of the day, that's all there is. If your search is for things that cannot be validated in any way, you have to settle for a faith position. And if you don't stop searching after you find the answer, then what you're saying is there's a faith position that's stronger than the answer that you found. It's not a search. It's a faith position. Don't confuse a real search for a faith position. Do your search. Live with it until there's a reason to suggest that your search might be wrong and need to be redone again.
be true to your search. Be true to your senses. Be true to your morality. Be true to your humanity. Be true to your life, to thine own self. Be true. I turn it over to Dale to make his case. Okay, so so my case, uh, believe it or not, um, I didn't actually write out my case in response to David's blog, although there are some areas of overlap. Um, I sort of did my own thing. So, yeah, when I was sort of thinking, reflecting on my time on season one, um, I was trying to think of what were some of the things that were my strengths versus weaknesses, uh, and obviously... You know, uh, with the comments that that's exposed to an area of weakness that, for better or worse, is a part of me. So, yeah, that's something I, I need to work on. Um, however, my main theme is is one of my strengths that I believe is one of my strengths, and I know that's controversial. I, I've received feedback saying that actually I'm not, I'm not good at this, but I think I my strength is actually uh, coming up with frameworks that help us evaluate. And, and bridge the gap between skeptics and seekers or skeptics and Christians and so that we can sort of understand or frame the the issues that uh, that are controversial between us and what I thought about doing was okay let, let's in terms of engaging I wanted to look at five of the main objections that I haven't yet fully addressed um, and I won't get to here fully but um, you know the and show how we can sort of contextualize these issues um, and what I make of them. So, so the first uh, main skeptical objection that I that I've received pushback on is um, so people are familiar with my intellectual approach to studying the various religions in a systematic and consistent way. Um, I've I've developed you know my my process for doing that in, in my Bayesian analysis and that sort of thing, but. I've received some pushback from some skeptics saying, hey, Dale, don't you know there are different strokes for different folks? Um, and not everyone approaches religious questions intellectually. Um, so I just wanted to respond to, to this. Um, so in the, in the first place, what is the purpose of religion? And I think it's human beings in a general way want to get as far away from the state of imperfection that we're in, that we're obviously in. Um, you know, obviously David takes issue with that, but I won't. I won't respond to to his point here. But there's there's this sense that people have in general that something's not right. We we aspire to something better, and religions provide answers as to how we can go about achieving that. So this is why we study religions. Um, but what about the claim? Okay, well there are different avenues through which one can approach studying a religion or finding out which religion is true and that sort of thing. So I actually wanted to recognize and admit, look, I, I fully admit people are different. People have different proclivities. They have different personality types. Um, and there are different ways that people come to faith. Not everyone goes through such a rigorous amount of research as I had done and that sort of thing. So um, I actually, and, and no human being is one thing or another. Um, so I actually used um, a the framework of Hindu gurus who have come up with uh, a system of four different spiritual paths or, or yogas, which are designed for the different personality types as they saw it. And 
I've Christianized these. So I, I think we can take some of these and, and use them within a Christian framework. Um, but yeah, so the, the first is the reflective or intellectual yoga. Uh, this is jhana yoga. Uh, this is the path that I favor, I take, uh, and I advocate for and that sort of thing. Um, then there's bhakti yoga. So this is the path of through emotions, uh, primarily love as the fundamental emotion. So love and light, you'll, you'll hear that from Tara that, you know, love is the reason she, she does everything. So this is back to yoga, the way to God through emotions. Um, and yeah, that, that basically reflects in a Christian context, you know, coming to God through cultivating our, our emotional and spirit, which is how we relate to God and that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, the whole, we love others because God first loved us. Um, then there's karma yoga. So this is, I've received this from people like Richard Morgan, who, you know, they, they've said, um, you know, you approach God through being busy and doing actions, you know, get into a homeless shelter and, and volunteer time to help them go to a soup kitchen, you know, do, do things, get to God through work. Uh, and then the final yoga is Raja yoga. So this is getting to God through various psychophysical exercises or various uh, spiritual experimentation techniques. Um, and, you know, this includes meditation and yoga or, or even drug induced visions or dream experiences, these sort of things. So these are the four yogas that Hindus have come up to describe the various paths that different people can approach the divine or approach God. And I, I think we could learn something from that. I, I do think there's some truth. Um, at the very least, I think with the first three yogas, I, I can see Christians coming to God through through emotions, through experiencing the love of God and, and that sort of thing. Um, and combi when combined with a properly basic belief, uh, that that God that God is true, the Christian God is true. Yeah, that's a valid path. Or or people volunteering at a, a soup kitchen or that sort of thing, and and realizing God is real that way. So I do recognize. I'm a little bit sketchy on the Raja Yoga and the last one um, because I think that's an agent of chaos. It, it the other ones are more orderly, whereas Raja Yoga sort of strips us of our rational faculties, depending on what you have in mind. I'm, I'm thinking of like drug-induced um, visions and that sort of thing, or dream quests uh, initiated by drugs. Um, but yeah, my, my main point here is, look, none of us are one thing or the other. What, what is it? What is the passionate point I want to imply? Number one, we, we are all human beings are, are at all of the paths uh, are relevant to every single human being. And I want to stress that no human being is engaged in a true quest as a real seeker if they are not engaged in jhana yoga, in the intellectual approach to studying religions. This is, in my opinion, the most important and or at the very least, it's a necessary component of a spiritual quest. Um, the Hindus themselves recognize, hey, this is the shortest path to salvation. Uh, engaging in intellectual arguments. It, it gets you there faster than anything else. Um, the Greeks obviously, you know, no, noticed this in, in stressing logos, the principle of reason over and against sensational forms of knowledge and that sort of thing. Um, and, and Bacchus, I, I'm very much, as Frederick Nietzsche would say, a, an Apollonian. You know, reason is the best way to get us there, or at the very least, it's a necessary component 
for discovering religious truth. So if you're not engaged in that component, you're not living a full life as a human being. You're, you're not going to get to the answer um, because that is a necessary component of one's search. Um, so that's my first response uh, to the skeptical objection. Um, this is going to take a long time. Sorry, David. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering, do you, do you, do you go for it? Go through it? No, no, no. Go okay, go for, go for it. Okay. So the, the next objection is some, is one that I've gotten from, from several people, including David himself. Um, so this I call authoritative apologetics versus epistemic humility. Um, so yeah, this is something I've heard multiple times, as I've said, where it's, I come across as this religious fanatic, uh, or a fundamentalist or, or an arrogant apologist who, you know, lacks epistemic humility or, or doesn't empathize with the plea of skeptics on various issues and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I, I stick to my guns. I, I remain firm, uh, when I feel I'm warranted, uh, to what I believe, uh, and this is seen as a problem. Um, and usually it's coupled with something that really annoys me because it, it it seems like it's just a dismissal of everything, of my opinions and that sort of thing. But they'll they'll point to, yeah, but look over here, this Christian over here disagrees with you. You're, you're a Molinist? Ha, there's a Calvinist over here. Um, uh, oh, you, you don't think hell's too bad uh, because it's not a torture chamber model? Well, have you met David Johnson? He thinks it is, and he was a Christian preacher, so I guess you're wrong. Um, you know, it's 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 this appeal to disagreement, uh, disagreeing Christians, and this, you know, this arrogant certainty that I seem to have versus what they want. You know, being in a state of confusion, Christian confusion. Um, so so yeah, that's sort of the objection. Now, how would I go about engaging with this? So this actually interacts with an, a new area in epistemology called the epistemology of peer disagreement. Um, and it basically asks, look, what, what is a rational person supposed to do when they're faced with an epistemic peer? Uh, so that's someone that's supposedly equally competent, familiar with the same evidence, has a equal cognitive and educational basis for knowledge and that sort of thing and abilities. Um, but yet they hold to a counter counter viewpoint to mine. What, what does the person do? And there are two fundamental positions. So I think this is where the friction is being caused between skeptics and that, that object to me in this way versus me. So the first is there's a conformist view. Um, so this is the view of you skeptics. This is the view of people saying, well, it, if that comes about, what you do is you, you must either abandon your beliefs, say, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're right or I'm right because we're peers and we contradict. Um, or you come to a compromise position, you know, between each other, you work out some compromise position that you both agree to. Uh, so that's the conformist or conciliatory uh, approach that I believe the skeptics seem to take here and that I think is wrong. Um, but then, thankfully, there's also um, the steadfast view. So I'm a, I'm a steadfastist. Um, no, I, I think we should continue to hold on to our beliefs, uh, even in the presence of peer disagreement, unless we have due or sufficient reason uh, to change our mind or become agnostic after considering the reasons of, for the contrary opinion. Um, 
we don't just abandon our beliefs mindlessly because, oh, uh, he disagrees. Um, oh, okay, I guess I don't have my opinion. No, you say, well, why do you disagree? What are your reasons? And I evaluate that for myself. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend the steadfast view because there are various reasons why two seemingly peers might disagree. Um, so, yeah, in the first place, the conformist view is just self-refuting um, because there are, pe there are peers that disagree about it. Um, secondly, it's not, it's not always clear whether two people are, in fact, epistemic peers. Um, even if the two are, are scholars, they both have PhDs in a relevant field from an accredited un university. I mean, maybe one of them paid attention in class while the other slept. Um, maybe one keeps better up to date with the academic peer-reviewed literature uh, than the other. So we can't just assume, oh, okay, these guys are academic peers. That has to be investigated. Are they actually on a similar knowledge base and that sort of thing and in a, in a similar position to judge? Um, also, we have to consider, this is another thing I've done. What if the one of the peers has overriding knowledge outside of the area of disagreement that uh, indirectly has an impact on that question. So, you know, I, I've appealed to this, you know, for example, with the virgin birth. Uh, me and David are academic peers. I have no proof that it did happen. He can't prove necessarily that it, it didn't happen. So let's say it's we're peers and it should be agnosticism. We both disagree. I could actually come in and say, no, it's actually more probable that the virgin birth did happen because I have outside knowledge that Christianity itself is true. Um, and therefore, and the Bible is sufficiently attached to Christianity, therefore the virgin birth is in the Bible, therefore it happened. Or vice versa, you know, maybe David has outside knowledge that Christianity is false, therefore, okay, it probably didn't happen, or supernatural miracles are not possible, or something like that. Um, so yeah, the, uh, and then finally, thirdly, we have the issue of bias, um, obvious skeptics have brought this up against Christians like Lydia McGrew and that sort of thing. So yeah, bias is an obvious fact of reality. It will sometimes interfere with academic or epistemic peers, their integrity and honesty and fairness uh, in their analysis of a given issue. Um, I don't think that will be controversial. It, it happens on both sides. Um, so that might prevent them from being epistemic peers. Um, and then finally, and most importantly on this issue, is the fact that, look, I have first-person knowledge of what I did in my search. None of you guys have that. Uh, you can gain access to bits and pieces of it from what I directly reveal to you. Um, but other than that, you don't have first-person knowledge like I do of what I did. So I have no idea what some random Christian who believes homosexuality is uh, is cool, uh, why they came to that decision or what they did, uh, were they actually fair and that sort of thing. But I do know my treatment. So I don't care if somebody disagrees with me. It's totally irrelevant and meaningless. What I do when I confronted with that is say, okay, well, why do you disagree? Present to me your reasons and then I'll decide. If, if you have good reasons, then I'll modify my opinion. Um, but just presenting me this Christian disagrees. Look, 80% of Christians think homosexuality is cool. Um, I don't give a damn. I don't give a darn. Uh, that's totally irrelevant, and it should be. I, my passion, please, to take a steadfast view.
Steadfast doesn't mean that you're not open to changing your mind, but it means that you remain steadfast unless and until you have a reason, sufficient reason to change your mind. Um, so that's my plea with that uh, objection. Sorry, this is ta- is this taking too long, David? Or? No, make your case. Yes. Okay. Um, now the next objection uh, I call to infinity and beyond. So this is an issue of uh, David, but also other skeptics have sort of uh, the issue of headcanon, as he calls it. You know, you're you're making up various scenarios to defend God and, and that sort of thing, uh, and it goes beyond the explicit uh, statements of the Bible. It's going above and beyond the Bible. I'm, I'm you know, using my brain to think up certain things. Um, yeah, so they'll say, look, this, this is a wrong thing to do. Um, and if you're doing it, you should just be within the strict confines of what the Bible says. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is wrong. In the first place, I do think it's obvious that Christianity is an evolving religion. It's a living religion. Um, there are developments that have taken place. The, the Christianity that I practice is not exactly the same as the first century. Um, we have to recognize this. But the question is, is that a problem? And I think, no, it's not. Um, at least in certain cases, it's not. Um, and it, it relates to, okay, there are two different approaches to scripture. Um, so there's the regulative principle of worship or scripture, um, which is sort of, okay, they worshiped in house churches in the Bible. We have to worship in house churches. Uh, they didn't use me. There's no uh, descriptions in the New Testament of the, of the apostles playing musical instruments or dancing. Therefore, that's sinful. You're not allowed to do that in the church. Um as a, and then there's the normative approach, which is what I take and what I advocate for. And this, this says no, that's that's stupid. Oops, uh, that's Sorry that's wrong. That. No worries. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's stupid. That's a stifling uh, uh, principle to take. The normative one it takes principles from the Bible, principles of worship. So uh, if you're not preaching the word of God in a in a sermon uh, or presenting the gospel message. That's an essential element. You, that means you're not doing church if you don't have that. Um, likewise, I think singing and, and praising God is an essential element. Uh, prayer is an essential element of a service. Um, but, you know, other than that, certain things can take different forms. My, my pastor uses PowerPoint presentations. I, I don't think anyone in the early church was using PowerPoint. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... The issue of headcanon, we have to realize, my, my passion plea here is, look, God wants us to worship him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. Again, we are a complete picture. We have to use everything to worship God and, and to approach God. We don't want to be have the intellectually and emotionally stifling doctrine um, of the regulative principle. Or Muslims, they have the doctrine of bid'ah. Um, no religious innovation, no religious speculation. If you if you even ask philosophical questions like, can God create a rock that's too big? That, that's heresy. That'll get you killed in some places of the world. Um, that is ridiculous. Uh, God wants us to use our minds. He wants us to wrestle and reason from the scriptures and, and from the general revelation to, to come to increasingly more and more knowledge of who and what he is. 
Um, so yeah, that I, I don't think my main point here is head. There's nothing wrong with head cannon. Where I see an issue with head cannon is when we come up with our own ideas. So I have my Molinistic defeater or my real seeker criteria and, and that sort of thing. If I become or I, yeah, I, and I also have my method for arriving at what are the essential doctrines. Me and David have gone back and forth on that. And David has challenged me at a higher level. Um, well, what if your method itself for arriving at the essential doctrines is wrong? Um, I, I don't think it is, but I have to admit it's possible that my hermeneutical method could be wrong. And I have to not be too dogmatic on that without sufficient warrant. You know, I have to be open to the possibility um, that I could be wrong uh, on that issue because I, I am going above and beyond what the Bible says and I'm using human reason to arrive at my conclusion there. So, um, yeah, my main point here is headcanon is cool, but just recognize it for what it is. It's headcanon, uh, so don't get too dogmatic without due warrant. Um, okay, so skeptical objection number four. Um, so this is from my good friend Darren. Christians just make things up. Um, and I, I've given a subtitle here, The Problem, as I see it, of Skeptical Presuppositionalists um, and the Assumptive Nothing Buttery of Scientism and Naturalism and that sort of thing. So, yeah, this this is an issue I've encountered quite a lot from skeptics, and it's it's been very problematic. So I've, I'm accused, constantly accused of just making things up when I appeal to um, philosophy or philosophical notions or modal logic um, properly basic beliefs and that sort of thing. And, um, in some of my conversations with Val, there, there's an, what I consider an, an arbitrary distinction between what are called plausible scientific explanations versus fanciful supernatural explanations. And the, the latter of which are just discounted, um, without due reason, in my opinion, um, skeptics will disagree and say, no, we, we have warrant, um, to discount those, but yeah, so that so that's the the objection is there's just anything that's outside of the realm of science uh, or empirical evidence is just made up uh, and is not true. Um, so how did I want to go about framing or contextualizing where these differences are coming from so we can sort of bridge the gap? So the first is how we approach the the um, philosophy of science as a discipline. So skeptics will take what's called an internal philosophy of science. Um, so they view, look, philosophy is just another branch of science proper. It, it helps us mostly linguistically with, you know, clarifying our terminology um, and that sort of thing. But ultimately, there's no difference between philosophical questions and scientific ones. Sooner or later, they will all reduce to psychology, to um, science. So for example, epistemology. That's not philosophy. That's science. That's really psychology or neurophysiology and that sort of thing. Um, and, and critically here, um, where I think skeptics are actually the ones just making things up, is they'll, they just assume without rational justification, science and the, is its own rational justification. It, it doesn't need 
uh, verification or confirmation from some higher viewpoint, aka philosophy or logical principles and that sort of thing, it, it just justifies itself. Uh, so that's the internal philosophy of science, whereas most rational people, most philosophers, put it that way, people that actually think about these things, philosophers of science, um, take what's called, uh, including my own professor, by the way, who's an atheist, they take an external philosophy of science view. Um, so this is, science. look, science and the scientific method are proper objects um, for evaluation via philosophy, a higher um, order discipline and, and applying logical principles to the scientific method in order to make it work and in order to evaluate what is the difference between good and bad science and that sort of thing. So philosophy is a second order or normative discipline, whereas science is only a, a mere first order uh, or descriptive discipline of reality. It, it doesn't, you can't get an ought from an is kind of thing, kind of thing there. Um, but yeah, so so it's philosophy for, for us that justify the presuppositions of science and evaluate the epistemic validity of, of various scientific claims and that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, so yeah, I think the main, one of the main issues with the IPS is it, look, it just begs the question. It, skeptics are literally just making things up when they just say, no, just science works, it, it, it justifies itself kind of thing. So uh, a second, a second major area for why we're um, having a difference of opinion is, so there are presuppositions um, of naturalism and that sort of thing, metaphysical naturalism, um, or at the very least, methodological naturalism. And I think this is a big problem as well. Um, and this sort of grounds the framework for scientism, that this, only the scientific method or empirical evidence will work. Um, but we all know that there are these presuppositions behind them, right? The knowability of the external world is not covered by science. You can't prove scientifically that my senses uh, are reliable guides of what's real, or, or you can't address the realism, anti-realism debate um, in, uh, you know, scientifically and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, the, the main difference here, are there's ontologists versus um, naturalists. Um, and this is where the making stuff up thing comes into play. So ontologists will accept, look, there are abstract entities as well as physical things. Uh, so things like numbers or logically possible worlds, um, consciousness and that sort of thing, things that these things are actually real entities that we experience every day and interact with every day. We, we all, I've, you know, said it's it's obvious these things exist. They're abstract, but they're real. We deal with them all the time. Um, and scientists would say, nope, no, no, no. There's only uh, the physical objects. Everything reduces down to physics and that sort of thing. The hard sciences, <clears throat> and. Everything else is just pseudoscience, fantasy. So that so that's an area of dispute. Um, the final part of this that I wanted us to help bridge the gap is what is the nature of the scientific method itself? And here I think skeptics often, lay skeptics, will have this sort of naive view. There is such a thing as the scientific method. There's one thing that all scientists do. 
Um, and that's the scientific method. You know, it's what we learn in high school and that sort of thing. But um, actually, that's not true. Uh, reality is much more complicated. There are multiple scientific methods, depending on what type of science, and they're radically different. There, there is no, um, you know, set standard set of procedures and that sort of thing. It, you know, some people like Val was alluding to inductivism and um, how that represents scientific reasoning for plausible explanations versus fantasy and stuff like that. But again, as I said, science is much more complicated. It's actually a hypothetical deductive method. Um, and what I would say is we should adopt the eclectic model for developing scientific methodologies. So you know, this recognizes that there are a cluster of different approaches. It involves various forms of reasoning, deductive, nominological. Uh, so that's like the falsification principle, for example, deductive statistical, inductive statistical. Um, there are different types of explanations as well. So the, there's forensic science. Um, things are not repeatable. Um, there's compositional, structural, or intentional explanations. And... Um, Basically, it's, it's the eclectic model looks at seven different aspects um, on the science. So, and how those are different and that sort of thing. So, I'll just read out what the seven areas are, but I won't go into detail about um, about them. So, the first one is the formation of scientific ideas. Um, second deals with the nature of scientific questions and problems. Third is the use of scientific ideas and scientific explanations, how they're used practically. Four is the nature of scientific experiments. Um, five is the testing of scientific ideas. So this is scientific confirmation, which David alluded to as a, a problem for theists. We, we create unfalse, a problem for philosophy, as he said. We, we create unfalsifiable ideas, according to him. Um, the nature the nature of scientific ideas or laws versus theories uh, versus models. Um, and then finally seven, the aims and goals of scientific ideas. So this is the eclectic model. It looks at these seven aspects of science and the scientific method and there and presents, look, there are differing approaches by scientists, practicing scientists for each one of these. and, I just wanted to focus on the first one because it proves the point, um, the formation of scientific ideas. It, it relates to the objection of just making things up. You know, I come up with my Mol Molinistic defeater, for example. Um, oh, that's just making stuff up. Um, well, I guess you think scientists are just making things up too because that's what they do. When they're forming their scientific ideas, um, there are principally two ways. It's, it's from below. Uh, so this is a process of reasoning called abduction, and it's basically just education, uh, educational guesswork on their part. They're, they're inventing a theory to fit the observed facts that we already know. Um, obviously, they go beyond that with confirming the theory in that, but I'm just addressing the formation part. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that sounds what I'm doing, like what I'm doing with my Molinistic defeater. I'm looking at the facts. I'm coming up with a theory from below abductively reasoning what could make sense to fit those facts. Um, and there's the second way, reasoning from above. And this is, again, where they have this overriding worldview or knowledge that impacts upon them uh, in coming up with their theories or hypotheses. Um, again, just like me and my Molinistic Defeater, for example, or real secret criteria, um, 
I have overriding knowledge that Christianity is true, God is morally perfect, um, and I reason from above. Okay, well, we have this fact that people are getting killed by order of God. Um, how can we explain this? Okay, well, there's a Molinistic defeater. It explains the facts abductively. And from above, I have overriding knowledge that a morally perfect God exists. So this uh, theory would make sense. So technically speaking, at the very least on the first aspect uh, of scientific methodology, the eclectic model, I'm just being a good scientist. I'm formulating theories in exactly the same way scientists do. I mean, scientists come up with come to their ideas in very weird ways, if you know anything about the history of science. I mean, one one guy, I forget uh, who it was now, but he, um, you know, he had d various dreams, weird dreams about snakes uh, biting their tails. And that's what came up uh, with the, with one of our most famous scientific theories of all time. So, um, yeah, I just want to end this point with a quote from Walter Wink. Um, and he's referring to modern skeptics who hold to this position of scientism and that sort of thing. And he says, look, people with an attenuated sense of what is possible or plausible will bring with them that conviction uh, to their examination of reality, and they'll thereby diminish it by the utter poverty and limitations of their own experiences and worldview. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's what's happening with a lot of the friction that I get when I'm presenting my ideas. Uh, there's just this assumed position of skepticism of skeptics to assume scientism is true uh, or empiricism or that sort of thing and everything else is just making stuff up you can dismiss it um, so yeah finally my fifth point um, so a Christian's argument from ignorance um, so yeah I've, I've when presenting the positive evidences for Christianity from miracles or what I call G belief authenticating events I've often heard, oh, you're just appealing to an argument of ignorance. You, you can't explain how the shroud images were formed naturalistically or, or explain the resurrection appearance to the Twelve. Therefore, God did it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm alleged to be using this argument from ignorance or a God of the gaps type reasoning. Jeez, I'm losing my voice. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, this, this is entirely false. Um, I'm actually reasoning perfectly logically. I've come up with an 11 premise deductive argument uh, based on uh, co-opting the argument from confusion or undue confusion that skeptics use all the time. Um, I mean, so, so, so yeah, I'll, and I'll leave that in the sources because I know Anthony was upset that he lost that or something. So I'll, I'll put that as an attachment in the sources, my 11 premise argument plus um, yeah, premise number eight is where I lay out criteria by which we can adjudicate the fulfillment of all of which allows us to rationally, as a, a quote-unquote reasonable person, you know, average person in the pew and, and that sort of thing, can reasonably say, yeah, this looks like this event involved God in some way. Um, so yeah, that that's in premise number eight in the text in my uh, document there. And look, it says, look, if we can prove an event actually happened, two, that the event is, quote unquote, extraordinary. Notice I'm not saying necessarily supernatural, uh, but it's extraordinary. Um, and in I think in my Shroud series, part four, uh, I actually outline what that means in detail. 
um, so you can go through the criteria in, in the attached document or listen to Shr my Shroud series part four, where I actually discuss how I would show that the Shroud evidence is extraordinary according to criterion B. Um, and then finally, the most importantly, the event takes place at a context charged with religious significance. Um, so that's where we've done shows on that. So that's where the event in question has to be sufficiently attached to the religion. Uh, David and I did a show on sufficient attachment. Um, also, the event serves to attest to the truth of the religion. So it's a very specific purpose uh, or telios and goal for the, the event itself. And finally, the event itself is not subsumable to any other religion. So, and again, me and David did a, an early show on subsumability as well. Um, so yeah, with all of these criteria fulfilled, we can at the very least inductively uh, conclude as a rational, reasonable person, quote unquote, reasonable person, the legal definition. Um, yeah, God's involved here. We can detect the design or agency of God involved in this event uh, rationally. Um, and this is this is my sort of plea is I, I want you guys to sort of think um, when you're thinking of positive evidences, think in terms of these criteria um, for how you would identify the agency of God versus just a random natural event or a natural anomaly and that sort of thing. So. I think I've come up, I, I think I've gone beyond what I've seen in any other um, any other Christian apologist in, in coming up with these criteria, especially with criterion C uh, and with my uniqueness falsification criteria and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, take a look at that and, and maybe think about that as to how we would bridge the gap. Like when do my criteria allow us to say, yeah, God did it uh, versus... Um, Oh no, it's a it's a natural anomaly. No matter what the evidence is, I will always just reject it and say, well, somehow it's it's a natural event that doesn't involve God um, in any way. So yeah, uh, that's finally it. Um, I'm losing my voice as I said, but <clears throat> um, yeah, that I went over these five objections because I wanted to give you guys my take, my answers, you know, giving everyone a, a defense to the questions posed, uh, the challenges posed to me, but uh, also to highlight what I think has been a strength of mine um, in this series, how I approach systematically the objections of skeptics and, and try to contextualize it into a way where the skeptic can go, okay, that I understand, that's where you're coming from, and vice versa, the Christians can say, okay, you've got this position, and then, okay, what are the arguments for and against? Why should we privilege one position over another? Um, I, I truly believe I've done a, a very good job in, in helping us to bridge that gap of where our differences are and, and contextualize uh, some of these issues over this season. Um, so yeah, all, all in all, bad and good. I, I've learned good things about myself and I've learned I have certain weaknesses, in, especially with the comments and that sort of thing. But all in all, I, I think it's been a privilege to be on. I'm grateful that I learned these lessons. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I fully intend to work on bolstering or boosting up my strengths and eliminating as best I can uh, the weaknesses that I've discovered about my character. So yeah, uh, that's that's my case. Thanks for, thanks for listening, everyone. Okay. okay. Wow. Um. <laughs>
that took a lot longer than I thought. <laughs> yes. So I'm hearing an echo of my own voice. It's now going away. So I hope that you didn't hear that um, as a listener. I don't plan to edit anything. Uh, so <laughs> hope it's hope it's listenable. Um, so, um, hmm. Do you want to go maybe address your case? So we we could we could stop. <laughs> it, okay. I mean, look, I'm not going to. <laughs> but I just want to. I just want to present it as an option to the listener. We could stop. You could stop now. Uh, actually, listener, um, you have heard uh, both our cases, and I don't think that one really overlaps with the other. And so, see, you know, I told you I didn't. Yeah. I didn't copy your. Thing. So you can you can you can take from it what you will. I am happy to present my case as is. Uh, you can go back and listen to it. Nothing that Dale has said um, changes it in any way, and I just declare I win. Um, so I, you know, that's <laughs> you easily say I win. And Dale, and Dale could too, so, right? So, um, but the fact of the matter is, there's there's no reason other other than um, you know, it's just my personality type to rebut anything <laughs> that. Uh, Dell said, "I just don't, I don't feel obliged to do it because I think, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the way Dale presents his case is simply not how people think. It's not how it's not how humans work and operate. And obviously, some humans do. Dale does, but maybe he, it should. Maybe that'll help bridge this this gap and make it feel like we're engaging. Like I, I, I take." I've heard that skept like I said, I think this is my strength, but I recognize that on a perceptual level, skeptics don't think uh, this is a strength. I have been told directly that I this is a weakness of mine. So maybe if we think along these lines, I mean, yeah, I, I presented arguments why I think my position's better briefly, but pretend I fail on that at, at the very least we have a way of thinking like okay the philosophy of science are you internal or external or the different paths to God are, are you more a pathway through emotions or you know it's it's a way of helping us to understand each other I think yeah, okay so the woman at the grocery store looking for the the right kind of butter uh, to put in her grocery basket listening to this podcast is not going to be moved by anything that you said, I don't think. And I, it, furthermore, the things that you were appealing to, your former podcasts and arguments, I just don't think that that's how that person thinks. And that's the person I'm trying to reach. And I think that I have said things that give them reason to think and give them pause, and you have not. So this is, you know, in, if you were writing an academic paper, I, I think that you've got a lot of interesting thoughts. And I think that you should put it in an academic paper. I think that you should scout it around to academic journals and see if it has play there. Uh, because there there might be some kind of person there in those circles that um, will respond the way you think. But the, the audience member that I envision... Um, they, they just don't think that way. And I, I don't... Um, See, I, I mean, I don't... when when I was a preacher in a church, Dale, preaching on your side, when I was when I was on your team, <laughs> I didn't have people who thought that way. Right. And, and I and I and I have taught 
classes and preach sermons at a lot of high end churches where their people were smarter than me. Uh, and and you, there's they just didn't think that way. And I, I guess one of the advantages I have is having dealt with real people in matters of faith where they live, and I know how they think. Um, and so I, I hear what you're saying. Well, maybe they should think differently. Yeah, that, but, that's my main, right. My but main you, yeah, so you're you're saying maybe you should be a different kind of human. And that's not an appeal that works well, or matters. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, with the first, this sort of goes to Sarah's first objection, right? And well, I recognize people are different and have different proclivities, but we are all the, the intel, we are all intellectual, rational beings. In addition to whatever else we will, maybe I'm more emotional than I am intellectual, but that doesn't negate the fact that you are also an intellectual being and you need to be a full human being. You, you need to engage in rationality if you're, if you're asking. But there's a difference between intellectual and academic. Would, would you agree with that? Do you, do you see any nuance there? Sure. Yeah. Like a, if you're saying like, I'm talking above, but um, I don't know. I, I've tried to talk to the lay person. Like I, so me and you have slight disagreements in our approach. We've discussed this a lot of times where you, you want to dumb it down to the, not as an insult, but I, I like dumb it down to the language in the bar, the language in the streets. Um, whereas I, I see, I want to sort of elevate um, people to sort of challenge and expand um, and, and maybe that, like, look, people, the bar, the bar room talk type approach has been around for most people are like that as you say that's been around for millennia how effective has it been maybe it would be better if people actually did the work to challenge themselves i mean no one i'm i'm not gonna the people at the bar room level are challenging themselves the homer simpsons of the world are challenging themselves they simply have a, a, a limit yeah. And so you you have to you have to frame that challenge within their limits. Yeah. Do you, but do you think this is beyond like I I don't know like uh, understanding what uh, let me see uh, this is this is sophomore okay, college so stuff uh, Dale uh, and I think that it is beyond most people. There there is a reason why only thirty uh, percent of Americans have a bachelor's degree. And and why the other seventy do not? Well, okay. Well, let, let me take so for example with objection number two. I, I think the the person in the bar can understand, and they're being elevated to. Oh, okay. There, there's actually a technical term. This is the epistemology of pure disagreement, and there are two primary fundamental positions. The the ones that skeptics take is the. Um, is the conciliatory um, approach, right? If if you're confronted with someone who disagrees with you, you just, okay, I don't know what to believe. I, I just abandon my beliefs um, and that's it. And that, that's the sense that I get from you guys is, is you guys have been wanting me to be humble by, look, Dale, you're a Molinist, but there's a Calvinist. You think homosexuality is a sin, but look, 80% of Catholic modern day Christians think it's not a sin. So you want us to abandon. That's 
the conciliatory approach. You have a little label that helps you understand where those people are coming from. And then there's the steadfast approach, which is my approach, which says, no, hang on to your beliefs unless you have due reason. You don't just abandon it. You ask that contradictory peer, you say, why do you think that it's that homosexuality is okay? Or why do you think Calvinism is true? And then you evaluate it on your own. Like a, a person in a bar couldn't, like they're elevated in terms of learning helpful terminology that gives labels, but there, it's it's still understandable for a person in a bar, I think. So I've, I've got this in my notes um, and I would like to come back to it. If, if you don't mind, uh, so my first note was actually sure. about the intellectual, uh, what we were talking about before. I, it's, and I just want to make sure that, that, that that's rounded off uh, before we move on to something else, which okay. is um, I think there is a, a matter of intellectual privilege that you are simply overlooking. So if I were to concede that you were – that you really do have the best approach, which I, which I don't concede. I, I think that, I think that to concede that would mean that only a fraction of the population has a chance of gaining the level of spirituality that you think they should, because what you are not recognizing is the amount of intellectual privilege that is required to, to get to the level that you're, talking about. Heck, I have debated with you for a year on these very themes, and you used some words and phrases and alluded to concepts that are above my head in your in your speech. Okay. So, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty was, clever I guy. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was trying not to. I was, I was hoping this would bring clarity. To, okay. Um, okay, well, let me, let me engage this way then. So, I hear what you're saying. I, um, I want to interact with it, and I think you're right. People have an intellectual abilities, um, and, and sometimes that can be a problem. Like, like I said, I, I thought what I've said in my blog and that sort of thing would be understandable to, to people. Um, but let's relativize it. I'm just – my main point is we all have, have a duty to use our intellect in adjudicating this to the best of our ability. Um, after that, it's God's responsibility, you know, that, that real secret criteria. But you have, you have to make that effort to try and challenge yourself. If you're just sitting around in a bar all day and you never think about, like, okay, I presented these four different approaches or yogas, as Hindus would call it. Okay, you, you can say, well, where do I fit um, the pathway to God through emotions? I understand what emotions are. I, I know what that is. Uh, do I privilege that? And is Dale right? Should, should I be using a com combination of these and not neglecting one approach over another and, and that sort of thing? Like the, these are questions that a, a person could challenge themselves and ask themselves. Uh, am I, what approaches am I using in my religious quest or, or am I using any of them? And should I be using them? Like these are questions I think that, the the bar person could ask. Yeah, you're asking that bar person to spend, you know, the equivalent of four years of college developing a systematic philosophy for life, and people just don't do that. That's not how we live. Um, so 
yeah, could a person do that? Could a person take the next four years and develop a systematic philosophy worldview that's comprehensive um, and encompass all these modes of thought? They could, but I contend um, that would be a, a fairly misspent four years. It is not how people live. I don't think it's how people should live. And I think that at the end of their, their four years of journey, they would a not have a degree that they could use and B, they would still be confused uh, about, you know, their next move in life. So I, I just, I fundamentally disagree with the level of privileged intellect that you think that people should have and or pursue in order to live a reasonable, consistent life. It, it's yeah, just not true. Okay. But, I, but I've come back with that, right? So I, I want you to hear me and engage with me because I, I've already said, I, I don't think necessarily that that is this, the standard. I think that's preferred. I mean, I think that the, the more education you can get, the better. But people have lives. They, they can't afford that kind of time. And I've recognized that. I, I've said you can't neglect the intellectual to the best of your ability. Maybe, you know, maybe you've got three kids. You're, you don't have the time to be reading academic books or going back to university. You've got to work and make the money and that sort of thing. But you can't just neglect asking these important questions. One, one should be asking these points of questions and doing their best to uh, to come to an answer. Maybe, maybe it's, okay, once a month I, I watch a debate and listen to the arguments and over time I, I watch enough debates that I, okay, I think this is a sufficient amount of uh, data. I'm, I'm going to make this decision on a balance of probabilities. So it's, it's, I'm not trying to advocate, no, you have to go to school. Like I, I might not be smart enough to, I'm, I'm trying to get into a master's. I might not make it. Maybe I'm not a scholar. Um, if that turns out to be the case, that's fine. I, I've done my best, which according to you is, is slightly above average um, than others to come to it. But I'm not going to look down on myself. Oh, I, I didn't become a scholar. Therefore, I don't have the right to my opinion. No, I, I did my best um, to engage intellectually and, and you know and engage in that avenue towards the truth. So yeah, I, I want to, I, I fully acknowledge um, and recognize people are, are different. They have different abilities and that sort of thing. So that's why I relativize it to each individual's circumstances and them doing the best they can. But at the same time, my, my passion plea here is I, I want to avoid this, okay, well, I, I can just shut off my brain then. I, I don't, there are different paths. I can just focus on the emotions exclusively, or I can just do karma yoga through work and and that sort of thing. I, I just want people, no, no, you can't exclude the intellectual path or, or the other paths. You, you do so to your detriment. Um, it's a detriment to me that I'm not fully as engaged in the emotions path as I should be. I, I should be exercising that as much um, as I do intellectual stuff to the best of my ability at least. So, so yeah, that's my main point there. Um, yeah, I want to I want to lead into um, your your first point case. So, uh, in the first place, to thine own self be true. Um, 
Sure, that sounds great. Uh, it, it's that would make a great uh, Hallmark card, um, and I think to some extent I I, I agree with it. Um, however, there's a problem because our ourselves are not perfect. Um, we're imperfect, so maybe following what uh, you know to thine own self be true is not always the case. Is not always necessarily the the good thing to do. I mean, Hitler was being true to himself when he slaughtered all those Jews. He truly believed that was the good thing to do. Um, so, so yeah, I, I don't think true to your life. I forgot. Yeah, that was the idea of uh, uh, Christians wanting you to die to yourself. And um, I, I don't think that anyone should ever consider themselves dead to themselves gotcha. for any reason. Gotcha. Okay. So so to be true to your life, um, this sort of goes hand in hand with your, your second point about being true to humanity. Because actually Christianity tells being a Christian is being true to our lives our true lives and being true to our true humanity. So um, it's not that humanity is seen as being a bad thing. Um, actually, God says in Genesis, uh, he looked at us and said, yeah, we are good. But it's since since then, we've become subhumans in, a, in effect uh, because we've contracted this sin virus through the through the fall. Um, and yeah, I think we all have this sense that something's imperfect in us and, and life could be better in certain ways. Um, so yeah, I would like to come back on this notion of what about, how do you know that the humanity that we're living in where rapes occur and, and death is happening and all of that. And no, that that's the ideal state of humanity. That's the best it, it we got. Um, versus, no, we, we can perfect humanity. We can become true humans, the way we were created to be, and, and live lives that the Creator expects us to uh, Okay, to well, I, w- I would push back on even the question. <laughs> so um, let, me just go, let me just go back uh, a half step uh, when you said that we are in some way subhuman. <laughs> Wrong, and and I will I will simply not accept that under any circumstances. But you're you're certainly going to have to uh, pay for that with some proof uh, if you're going to sit there and say that people are subhuman or less than what they are supposed to be in some way. That's that's just a ball faced claim uh, that has no basis in fact. And so, how do you know? that humanity was ever better than what it is right now, so that you call the state of our being sub. Right. So, uh, so two ways. Uh, um, in, the, in the first place, people seem to have an intuitive knowledge that all's not right in the world. So I could, I could appeal to that, um, that there are obvious ways. A world where humans don't rape each other is obviously better. Right, so uh, you appeal humans. to existential angst and fantasy. So what? Don't care. I don't. I don't well, care if you think that someone has an intuitive knowledge. That's not knowledge. 
they just they just feel like because they're uncomfortable with what we are now we surely we must have been better in the past surely there's something better for us surely i don't care if that makes you feel better to think that that's not science oh. that's not evidence so wait uh, so screw that question, your, your question was how do i know that we were better in the past yes is that yes oh, okay so, so yeah so in that case it would be divine revelation that is warranted through knowing that Christianity is true and the Bible is sufficient. Okay, so attached. because it, because it said so in a book, let's 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 just be very clear about that. So the person in the bar and the person walking their dog understands what you just said. It said so in a book, and so we must have been better in the past. Bullshit. Okay, so so David, that's not what I said. See, this, this is what frustrates me. I'm the one accused of not engaging, but then you misrepresent what I said. You okay, hey, cl clarify it then. It, it's it's not no, no, just no. that we read okay. it in a book. Tell me which part of that's wrong. Yes. No, no. So so that's half truth part. So I did say we read it in a book, but what else did I say? Is that all you heard? Oh, it's in the book. That's it. Is that all I said? Yeah, that's all, that's that's all that I heard that that resonated with me. Tell me what else you are are trying to say right. other than it's in the book. So let's take the book out of the picture. Tell me how else we know. Well, no, so can we take the book out of the picture? The, half, the, full, the full truth is it's in a book that is warranted as being by revelation. And therefore true. Okay, so we can't take the book That's, out of the picture. So it is because it's in a book. A book that is warranted. Okay, I don't care what else you say about the book. You're just qualifying the book. It's in yeah, no, the that's, book, that's a, and that's why we know. No, but the reason I'm saying that's a half-truth is it's misleading to the audience. You're, you're saying, oh, it's just some random book like any other old human book. Okay, it's I, did, I didn't say it was some random book, although I, I, I think that I could say that. It's in a book, and therefore we should believe it. Now, you're qualifying the book as being special and uh, true and believable. Great. Don't care about all that. It's, but it still comes down to it's in a book, and therefore we know that humans were better once upon a time. Humans uh, also, since it's in that book, must have lived to be upwards of a thousand years once upon a time. It's in the book. That, and that's why we should believe it. That's crazy. Why is it crazy? If if we have reason to believe that it is divine, it is a divinely revealed book. It's not crazy. Well, okay, uh, we have not, uh, as far as I know, surfaced the bones of humans that lived hundreds of years, and we have not surfaced the civilizations that show that humans lived a perfect, harmonious life in some way that uh, supersedes the one that we live now. We don't have any reason to believe that other than the fact that it is in your favorite book. In, in fact, everything that we can find shows that uh, that is not true. Okay, so, yeah, uh, I guess it ultimately comes down to do you have warrant for believing that it is a divinely revealed book versus just another ancient Near Eastern human book, and that, that's where our differences lie. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the only way I can know that we were good once upon a time. Um, 
So I'm willing to I'm willing to leave that sit exactly where it is and let the audience on both sides just mull that over. But regardless of whether I'm right or wrong um, about the past, because that that's Christian specific, it doesn't matter t- totally because it, it could be. Do you? We need to recognize that we are in a state of imperfection now. No, we don't. Everyone. No, once again, that's a claim. You can say that we are imperfect if you have an example of the perfect. I say that we're not imperfect. I say that we are, uh, in fact, exactly what we should be right now. In, in um, a pattern of evolution, uh, in a pattern of maturation of the species, I don't think that we are what we will ultimately be if this species is around for another thousand years. But we are also not what we were when we started. Uh, and the, the pattern seems to be that we are getting uh, in some sense of the word better, not worse. That seems to be the arrow of progress. Uh, and so, no, I, I don't... Uh, I don't buy what you're saying there at all. And you're not, yeah, I, I, I see an arrow of progress. So you would agree that people in ancient times were imperfect? No, you what? keep you keep, okay. I, you keep using this word, and I don't think it so means what you think it means. Uh, I am not saying that people are imperfect or that people were ever imperfect. You you are the one who keeps importing this notion of uh, a human ideal or an evolutionary ideal of perfection that we have to reach, and I don't believe that for a moment. Uh, so that is that is not in fact what I have been saying uh, all of this time. That is what you are trying to import into the conversation. Okay, so I, I don't want to get into morality, but what? Why do you judge people? You seem you seem to not think that's actually true when you're when you're not talking about it in a in specific directly because you will constantly judge people in the Bible as behaving badly and you you do pronounce this superiority as though no we really are better than these these people um, but then no, here you're trying I think to they are I think we are more evolved than those people we live longer. We are more socially aware. We are more empathetic. I know that you don't want to talk about uh, morality, but we have, we have a higher sense of empathy. Uh, the level of empathy that they seemed to have possessed is not much higher than a pack of lions, uh, if, if, if you're to believe the stories in the Bible. So yeah, I, I think that that is a higher maturation point. I, I don't believe that that is better because I don't believe that humans are better than a pack of lions, but we are more evolved, I think, more mature in, in some ways. We have a higher capacity um, to care uh, about certain things, and I, and I hope that in a thousand years that capacity will be higher. But that doesn't mean that that is that then we will have reached the place where we are supposed to be. You see, you're, you're the one who's creating this um, idea of perfection. And I don't, I don't think that there is such a thing. Right. So, and I would say most, most people throughout history have the common person in the bar has. Yeah. Well, if I can take a page from your book, I think the common in the person, common person in the bar is wrong because they've been listening to religionists. Uh, so Uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. 
I don't I don't see okay. so I don't see any evidence so person should be I don't see any evidence of this perfection of which you speak. I don't see any evidence of it in the past. I don't see any evidence that we are reaching some stage in the future where you can hit the bell and say ding ding ding, we are now perfect. Uh, I don't. I don't know what you are describing as perfect. I don't. Even, I don't know what that means when you're talking about uh, an evolutionary system. A baby can be perfect without being able to add two plus two. But we would say that there's something wrong with that person if they're twelve and they can't add two plus two. Um, that is, but this is a matter of maturation. It is not a matter of whether something is perfect or imperfect. And as a species. There are levels of maturation that we have had uh, over time. When we first climbed out of the trees, we weren't as mature as we are today. That that has nothing to do with whether we were perfect or less, more perfect or less perfect. Perfect doesn't factor into it. So I think it does. From all, from, from well, I get that um, you just assert that it's not the case, but. Um, perfection would be defined as having as many great, um, so the standard of perfection, human, humans want to have as many great making properties to the maximal degree that they can. Um, so in this, in this sense, yeah, a world where human beings don't have the desire to rape women, uh, uh, Or, or rape a man that that can happen. Uh, state or mature. Um, so yeah, under that light, um, human beings even today lack uh, lack having all of the great properties and or uh, at the very least lack a full breed possible uh, of those great making properties. Well, but you see, you you're, ju that? You're, cl you're claiming that, well, you, first of all, you're calling that perfection. And I don't, I don't, but you're claiming that somehow we once had that and we lost it. And that's where I say, you're just, you're, you're, you're making stuff up or you're just taking stuff from a story that you happen to like, uh, but is not validated. Yeah by anything uh, that we actually see in nature. So, um, yeah, you might say, well, there was a time when we had more of these, what you would call great making properties, but you can't validate that at all. Well, yeah, I can through through the divine, through being warranted in saying we have a divine. Okay, you can't validate that outside of religious faith. And that's not, not a validation. Okay, so you you've well, got to already to believe in order to uh, you know agree with your particular story. That's not the starting point uh, I have. So, from my perspective, it is nothing more than a claim that we were somehow at a higher state um, of maturity than what we are now. And even if I were to accept that uh, it's possible that we were at a higher state of maturity than we are now, which I do not, 
that still would not constitute that we were at some human ideal of what would be considered perfection by any means. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to think of how to... Okay, so there's two issues here. So let's, in the first place, forget about the claim about Adam and Eve in the state of perfection or whatever before, um, or being better before kind of thing, the fall. Right now, so defined... Um, in terms of the great making properties, um, you could at least agree, look, we, we do not possess all of the great making properties or we don't possess them all to the maximal extent possible. I don't even agree on what a great making property is, let alone all of them and what the maximal degree is. So you agree with some of them though? Like a I don't, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that term at all. Um, because it, it, it surfaces a type of way of thinking about the world and humanity that is not consistent uh, with a more scientific approach. So I'm, I'm trying to translate your language into something that I can use. And I, I think that there is such a fundamental difference in how you look at the world that it's very hard to make that connection. You're doing the exact same thing. You're just substituting the word mature. That That's a value-oriented word. Mature like is not a value-oriented word. It is not – I am not expressing that a baby has less value than an, a toddler because of their state of maturity. I'm simply describing their state of development. And I am suggesting that the human species is in a natural state of development. And you seem to be suggesting that it is not in a natural state of development, that it was simply dropped from, literally dropped from the heavens in a perfect state, and then we lost it. That's a very different idea than being in a natural state of development. That's why our language is so different and why it's hard for me to agree even with the most basic thing that you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And I wasn't saying that that's the second, the second issue that we're going back on, but okay. Um, okay, so I I just want the listener to understand I'm trying to, I'm trying to connect with you where I can, but they need to understand where the presuppositions come in and where it wrecks a discussion early. Yeah. But that, and that's what I'm trying to do. And the same goes for you talking with Christians. You you have a duty. This is your, your argument here, right? So you, you can't just assume or make stuff up as a skeptic and say that you're right. And we didn't, um, well, to the extent that what I'm making up is that the humans are part of an evolutionary process. I'm glad if you, if you want to just say, I'm making that up, that's great. I would say you're a science denier and we don't have any grounds to talk about this subject. No, no, I'm saying right now, I'm not on Adam and Eve stuff. Okay, so how do you know which of those properties makes us full humans? What What's God's list? Because you haven't given me that. Moral perfection is one. Um, having omnis- omniscience is incommunicable, but having knowledge, as much knowledge as possible. Uh, we are beings capable of having knowledge. It is a great making property to have as much knowledge as possible. That would make us... Okay, how do we know how much knowledge is possible? Because now then you would be saying, well, you know, we should have a certain amount of knowledge, but we don't. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that there's knowledge that we don't have that we should have? Because we might, in fact, have all of the knowledge we can have. 
Yeah, because you can take, you can infer it from the fact that God gave us brains and created us as rational beings. He created a world in which we're constantly trying to discover new things. Right, right. But how do you um, know that we aren't there already? I mean, you, your your whole case is that we're subhuman. We're not there. We're not where we're supposed to be. Yeah, there's some kind of there's some kind of ideal state that we're supposed to be at that we're not at. So what is that state? Right. I, I've just told you a couple things. And we can know that we're not at that state with knowledge because we can still ask questions to which we don't know the answer. Yes, but that, but we might, in fact, be at the exact state of knowledge we're supposed to be at until the next moment of evolution. Evolution is a continuing process. You're saying that we're behind the curve somehow. And I'm trying to figure out what the curve is that you think we're behind. A baby is not... Um, uh, somehow imperfect because they don't know as much as a toddler. Uh, yeah. they. So they, an, an infant uh, might in fact know is exactly as much as they're supposed to know at that particular time in their life. Now for you to say, no, they're developmentally behind. You have to have some standard uh, by which to say, no, they're developmentally behind. Here's a standard. Here's how we can know that. I'm asking you to give me that standard for this criterion of human knowledge. And once again, you just, you don't, you're not giving me any standard. You're just giving me claim upon claim. No, the, the standard is to desire to get as much knowledge as possible. And Humans do desire to get as much knowledge as possible. We, this is why we do science this is why we do physics this is why we send people Really? To space with just, with rocket just, fuel strapped to their butt. This is, just, this is why we do this. Just spend the last objecting to my intellectual path, saying that most people, the bar people, don't do that. They but don't care. I am. About- I'm not talking about individuals here. I'm talking about humanity as a species. And you were claiming that humanity as a species is somehow behind the curb. Oh. Well, if you're going to generalize it to everybody, I mean, obviously. Human beings are affected by the sin disease as individuals, right? Wait, wait, now you just uh, so introduced certain- a, you just introduced a whole new thing. Now the sin disease. Um, oh, well, that was from the Adam and Eve uh, thing, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can't, I can't. Um, well, general generalizing it without a Christian context, uh, I would just say that humanity human beings that make up humanity each have various faults or things that they should improve on um and they they all know it uh including yourself okay well they all know it isn't an argument that i'm uh, willing or able to interact with i don't know what all knows i certainly don't know what you seem to think uh i know so they all know it doesn't actually mean anything to me David, do you do you think that you could uh, ever come? Can you improve yourself as you are? forget about? Okay, you might say, oh, "Well, I'm perfect for where I should be at this moment." I don't care. I'm saying, what about in the future? Do you think that you can improve from your current state in any way? Uh, sure, but I don't think there's a such thing as an ideal state. So when you talk about perfecting, perfecting envisions an ideal state. Now, what is that ideal state for a human? In order to perfect a human, you would have to have a copy of a human that is that ideal state, and you can't produce one. 
Okay, no, but I, I have in various ways. Um, so the, well, the not in a way that I've recognized. I'm sorry, okay. not trying to be an obscurantist here, but you have not, in fact, produced an ideal human. Yes, I have. Okay, where it's, can I look at this I, ideal human? What page of the Bible can I turn to and find the ideal human? Jesus. Really? Because Jesus wasn't human, not completely. Yes, he was. Yes, he oh, was. oh, he was fully human, but he was also fully God, right? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, um, great. So, how do how do I know which part of him was perfect? Was the human part? Was the God part? Was the human part somehow influenced by the God part? I don't understand that at all. That's not how I am. So, I don't I don't actually I don't I don't recognize your example that Jesus was a fully idealized human. Yes, he he was actually. Okay. He, well, we then to the Bible says we are to emulate. And well, become okay. Christ. When I when I when I have the power of God and can tell a fig tree to die because it didn't feed me, I'll get back to you. Right. Uh, so humans did have superpowers, right? Through God, Jesus had superpowers through God. He wasn't doing that of his own. Well, this, okay. When's the last When's the last time you had a fig tree magically um, feed you or wither it to death because it didn't? I didn't say that's part of the ideal humanity. Though, well, okay. Right? Well, you did. You pointed to Jesus as if he was a high ideal human, but you want to kind of you want to so add his superpowers when you want to and take them away when you want to. I am saying that is not a picture of a human at all. Right. I don't. Okay, so I don't see the Jesus of the Bible as human at all. Right. So here, here are various different things. I'll name off. I'll list off some things. As I said, I've done through the knowledge thing. I've gone through the morality aspect we can become more morally mature or more morally okay. perfect we'll, like god we'll talk about we'll talk about morality in a in a, in yeah, a minute that's fine um how about the having a repaired spirit you've obviously got a damaged spirit the spirit is the fact well, that obviously you're... obviously to who to me and to, and <laughs> well, you're, you're just talking from your perspective. You're not giving any arguments. You're just saying, "Oh, that's BS." Well, that's, no, look, I don't. I don't think I. Asserted. I don't think there's any argument I can make against an unfounded claim. That's not really how it works. Uh, you you call me a mutant alien, and I say, "No, I'm not." And you say, "Prove it." You're not making any arguments. I'm okay, well, sorry. I can just play the same game with you. You're I don't. I don't have a. a I don't have a damaged game. spirit. I don't have a spirit. So you haven't proven that, but just granting that for the sake of argument, you can't prove that my spirit is damaged. You're just saying that it's damaged, and you're saying, gotcha. <laughs> no, that's not no, an but argument. You're asking me a question to provide what are the areas where humans are imperfect. Um, I so haven't I'm done it yet. <laughs> now, we will, we, will, we will address morality because I understand that you think that that's a case that you can make. That, that, uh, words, that but, but we've we've kind of separated that out. But you really haven't said anything else. The spirit and knowledge. I've said that. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't even know what the spirit is. And you say knowledge, and you you. But you didn't make a claim about. You didn't even make a claim about knowledge. You just say there's more stuff that we could know. So what? That, that does that mean that we are somehow developmentally behind because there's more stuff that we can know? Is that your is that your case? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's crazy. That's that, and that's, hey, can I? It, this seems like a good place to introduce bat shit crazy. No one thinks that way. No one is developmentally behind simply because there's more stuff they could know. To be mac, to be maximally great, we would omniscience. It's something that we'll never achieve. Um, oh, so sense. this maximally great idea of yours is unachievable. Correct. It seems like a maximally great thing would be achievable. 
No. Well, that's kind of like saying a maximally great God is one that exists. Uh, now, I have uh, actually it's, pushed back on this uh, in private because we have an argue the ontological argument, which is uh, something that you know maybe we'll do in the next season. But the, the whole idea of a maximally great being is that you know he it's it's better to exist than not exist, so he must be great. But you're saying that a maximally great uh, feature of humanity is unachievable. I I don't yeah, I, I don't buy that. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's because it's logically impossible to achieve certain things unless you're God by necessary. Okay, then it's God not a maximally great maxim- quality of humanity. Then it's a it's a you can say it's a maximally it's, great it's quality great of God, but we're not gods. A, look, it's a great making attribute to uh, give praise where it's due. If somebody opens a door, I, I say thank you. Um, to the extent that I don't say thank you, uh, that's or I don't appreciate it in whatever form, um, that's a bad thing. That is not us okay. reaching a state of maturity or perfection. Okay, um, but humans so, humans do that, though. Uh, so you're not you're still not talking about things that humans don't do. It's something that humans do routinely. Yeah, but not all humans do it. Well, so if you want to talk not about all humans do it every time. But you're but saying should. that you're saying that we as a species are subhuman. We shouldn't even call ourselves humans yeah. uh, because we haven't reached full humanity or we've lost full humanity. And you're talking about things that either we have already done or routinely do or things that we can't do because it's beyond our reach. You are not making any sense here. Yeah, I mean, not any, not any sense that I can follow. Okay. Um, there are certain things that we should be doing that we don't, that human beings as individuals, if you want to talk about humanity reaching perfection in general, that means every single individual human is perfection to the degree possible by humans as well. So if even one human being doesn't say thank you or have appreciation when it's due, uh, that's a problem. Humanity as a whole is not in a state of perfection. Okay, well, what's the perfect IQ? The perfect IQ? Yes. Like, this is God's. Okay. What's the perfect IQ for a human? No idea. Um, I don't even know what the score... I just don't have knowledge of how the IQ system works. Okay, well, then let's just make up a number for the sake of conversation. This is an analogy. So uh, we will uh, assert beforehand that we're talking out of our butts here. Uh, But for the sake of an analogy, let's just say the perfect IQ is 150. Uh, now, I throw that out there because it's achievable. People achieve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, since knowledge, in fact, and the ability to um, to process knowledge is a part of your idea of what a uh, perfect human is, mm-hmm. then I think that it's fair to say that part of that perfect human would be one with the maximal IQ achievable sure. by humans. Sure. So. Let's let's just say 150. Okay. All right. But so we perfect. know that most people, not even me, possess that IQ. <laughs> Patrick is 164, which is higher than Albert Einstein. But uh... no, 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 no. I and, and I will not let you uh, talk me into revealing my actual IQ. I wasn't it's, talking about yeah. Anyway. So it's 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 high enough, people. Um, but that said, it ain't there, and um, I don't know. Uh, I don't personally know anyone whose IQ is there. Although I suspect there there are some people 
who I know, who I suspect their IQ may be there, but I don't know for sure. But just for the just for the sake of argument, in order to be a perfect human, that's where you got to be. Okay. Do you believe that uh, humans walked around where all humans existed that that had that IQ? I'm saying that it's possible because human beings have achieved that that the state of perfection or maturity for the all humans would be every single human being gets to have an IQ of 150. So in the sense that we are not, there's even one human being such as me who doesn't have that um, IQ. As far as I know, I've, I've never been tested or anything, but well, I don't have that IQ, so we can know that for sure. So right. does, does that mean right. that all humanity is therefore subhuman by that criteria? Yeah, I would think you're not living up to your full created potential. Okay, as so, it, so is it fair to say that in generic terms, practically no one is living up to what it means to be human because their IQ is too low? Yeah, um, yeah, um, that would be, yeah, I, yeah, I would say that. Um, I think we need to. I, I would say that that is a fundamental weakness in your argument that you simply can never recover from. Furthermore, I don't think that you will see why it's a fundamental weakness in your argument. Um, I will. I will leave that to the audience <laughs> to suss out. But, no, but they, they're just going to say, "Well, are you saying I am more or less human based on my IQ?" No, people have their. People are human beings we treat everybody as a human being well that just seems like a a a convenient fiction though we treat them like human but you know that they're really subhuman yeah but everyone is subhuman in one way or another every everyone has has been affected by this is exactly what i want the audience uh especially those in the leaning christian side to listen to and pay close attention to this is a fundamental difference here uh, between Dale and myself, you are not subhuman. You are never to think of yourself as subhuman. What you, about this? What about this? D- pain, disease, and Do death. not let Dale damage you by convincing you that you're subhuman. You are not. Go ahead. No, well, you follow, be true to yourself. Don't, don't be a hypocrite and follow blindly whatever David says. David thinks uh, having pain is, oh, that's part of being humans. It is part uh, of being human. Raping? No, it's not. Not necessarily. Having pain is not a part of being human. Let me let me is ask you a question based on your magic book. Then, once again, based on your understanding, I know you can't prove this, so you're talking no. out of your butt. But it's no. I'm curious to know where you come from here. If Adam and Eve before the fall uh, had um, stubbed their toe on a rock, would it have hurt? I'm not going to answer that. So I'm going to say this and keep it in general. Human beings that don't experience pain or negative effects, um, you know, harm to their body, so that's better than human beings that are fallible and, and die and, okay. and okay. disease yeah. and that sort of thing. <laughs> I, that, that's that's a none answer though, because what you said is that part of perfection is not experiencing pain, and you're telling me that we somehow once upon a time lived in this state of perfection, and I'm just asking you a question: 
did those perfect humans that you think existed feel pain when they stubbed their toe? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to answer that because I'm asking you the question. You always sidestep to make me look okay, ridiculous. Okay, well, I don't know how that's a sidestep. Ask the question again, though, because... Is, I, is a world where humans don't experience disease better? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. okay, so that's... There you go. There's one aspect. Because we're busy trying to cure diseases, and I've got one or two of them that uh, I'm, I'm dying for a cure. So, uh, yeah. Um, then it's just arbitrary, isn't it? Like, you, you just like that aspect. Yes, um, I, I do like that doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that I'm somehow less human because I have disease. I, I'm fully human. Humans are things that get disease. You are suggesting somehow that humans are things that should not get disease. And I don't know where you're getting that from. Well, okay, so the subhuman thing and was... Dogs, like, dogs get hip dysplasia. And, you know, I love my dog, but, you know, if I've had dogs where, as a species, it is just a natural thing that happens to them that doesn't make them somehow sub-dog. They're not okay. some dog. They're they're it's fully religious. dog, even okay. with their hip dysplasia problems. All right, this will be my last word, and then we can move on to the next point. But okay. I made a mistake then. I shouldn't have said subhuman. Uh, that's the wrong way to say it. Um, put it this way. We, we are human beings, fully human beings, that are not living up to our full potential. Um, well, what is our not, full potential? In the first place, not to have disease. Uh, okay, but how do you know that that is a part of our potential? I mean, it's something that we would like to uh, achieve, certainly. Well, but I'm not the one engaging in the fantasy. I'm in the I'm, I'm engaging in the reality of where we are. What we know is that humans are creatures that get diseases. Now you're saying, oh no, a real human wouldn't get disease. You're making stuff up. You're assuming and asserting. You're doing what skeptics. Well, well, wait a minute. What did I What did I assert? The humanity we have now is the way it should be. We have disease. No, I well, no, no, no. I said I'm saying that the humanity we have now is what humanity is. I'm not talking about should. You're the one talking about should because you've got this idea of an ideal in your mind. I do not have that. I do not have a state of perfection that I am trying to uh, say is this is the idea. This is what a real human looks like. I am talking about what we are ontologically. As creatures, we are things that get disease. You are the one who's saying that that doesn't meet the standard of what a real human should be. And I am trying to figure out what, where you get this standard from that suggests that humans shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And you, and you have not given me anything to work with except it says so in this perfectly magic book. No, I'm appealing to people's general, your general, revel, generally revealed knowledge that we have. You mean existential okay. angst that things could be no, better? No, knowledge, properly basic. Existential knowledge. angst, properly basic knowledge. Okay, it, 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 tell me the difference then, because <laughs> what you said before is everybody knows we can do better. That's existential angst. That's not properly basic knowledge. That's not anything. Existential, existential angst is the feeling that comes about from having properly basic knowledge that we're not. <laughs> okay, so you're to feeling like existential angst, which is what I said. Um, no, so but great. That's, that's just an attendant feeling that comes about from knowledge that knows 
disease is not good. We're not in a, a place where we should be. We right, should not but suffer from disease. I, I think that disease is not good too. But I am not saying that that is somehow, therefore, not an attendant uh, characterization of what a human is and what a human does. We we have disease. How do I know that? Because we're humans and we have disease. You are the one who is taking it beyond that. You are going beyond the is to an ought. And I don't know how you make that leap. Right. Through properly basic belief and divine revelation. Okay. So this, this is how what, I submit how most every most human beings who've ever lived throughout history have experienced this form of knowledge. They know that the world is not as it should be. They're, yes, they're they, they have made things up based on the discomfort of their existential angst. I agree with you. My next rebuttal. Um, okay. uh, but you, you don't know that – you don't know. Can you just admit this then, that you don't claim to have knowledge that – humans are where they are supposed to be you, you don't make a claim you just well, i didn't i didn't make that i don't know that i made that as a knowledge claim i'll have to go back and roll the tape and listen to this and unfortunately i will have to because i've got to edit it so <laughs> i thought that's what you were that's what i thought you were doing so that's what i was well i think to. i think i don't know that that's what i was doing but if that was what i was doing i don't mind uh sticking with it uh because i think that uh, I can claim that what we are is what we should be, uh, because that is what we are. This is this is uh, a tautology. Uh, we we are what we are. In in order to take it out of that level of tautology, you have to say no. We are not what we should be, and that that's where the positive claim comes in. Uh, I I have simply given a tautology, and you're saying no. There's a claim to be had there, and you have not supported your claim with anything other than magical uh, talk. Right. So no, that's not true. I've supported it with warranted true beliefs. Magical talk. Not magical talk. It's logic talk. Okay. Um, but yeah. So my my final word, since this was your your claim, I guess I get the final word on this. Is um, what do I want to say? So yeah, it's no, no. Okay, move on. Okay. So yeah. uh, we were talking about intellect uh, before. Um, this this is yeah. So I I want to go back to um, something that something that you said here. Um, or something that you were talking about or, or implying. So beyond the question of whether people should pursue um, their intellectual uh, pinnacle uh, is the question of whether, whether intellect is even the right pursuit for religious truth. So let's say you get us all to 150 IQ and you have us all in libraries <laughs> reading, reading old dusty books and learning Latin. Uh, does that actually get us any closer to the kind of information that, that religion is? I suggest it does not. I, I don't believe that there is any amount of intellectual pursuit that reveals one iota of religious truth. Um, do you do you possibly mean in isolation, like 
or do you <clears throat> do you mean like in isolation only like if i have an intellectual belief through study that the proposition christianity is true versus actually being born again as a christian i'm not sure what you're getting i'm not entirely sure what your question is getting at i'm going to say yes until i have reason to think that i've misunderstood your question okay um so in that case yeah of course i would agree that that was my whole point we're back on objection number one, skeptical objection number one for, for the audience. Um, yeah, we're, we're not just one thing or another. We, we are rational animals. Yep, as Aristotle put it, that's part of our nature as human beings. But we're also emotional beings. We're also beings that like uh, having an emotional relation. That's the damaged spirit <clears throat> where our faculty of our soul, where we can relate to God and have a relationship with him. So when I converted to Christianity, I was sort of questioning, okay, I have an intellect, the intellectual arguments have led me to an intellectual belief in the truth of the proposition of Christianity is true. And I was then evaluating my spiritual and emotional faculties and, and saying, okay, am I really willing to commit to this truth and be a true Christian and, and that sort of thing and do my best to repent and place my faith uh, which is a relational term with, with God and that sort of thing. So that, yeah, you, you can't, in a sense, you can't come to true Christian knowledge just through intellectually assenting to the proposition Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus was God and that sort of thing. That's part of it. That's a necessary part of it. Um, but then there's other aspects as well. So, so I would agree with you. Um, if you're saying just spend your time in the library to the exclusion of all the other aspects of humanity. Okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a stronger claim than that. Uh, I'm saying that there is no part of religious truth that can be surfaced intellectually. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't even factor in. It, it is a little bit like trying to determine if a particular drug would make you feel good. I don't care how much chemical study you do. You cannot know the answer to that question until you do the drug. Can't know it. No, no amount of intellectual exercise will get you any closer to answering that question. Um, yeah. So that, I, I don't understand. That's just, sounds like foolishness. I, I don't even get, and this is a claim of yours. So, on the intellectual proposition of... Have you ever done drugs? I haven't, no. Okay, I haven't either. For for uh, the audience to know, I'm not an illicit <laughs> drug user. But I have uh, had a lot of prescription drugs that are, in, in some cases, stronger than street drugs. Because I have had a, a pretty close brush with... Uh, with uh, with death in my life, uh, not something that I am going to uh, catalog now. I can tell you what the bottles say. I can tell you what the chemicals were. I can tell you uh, how doctors describe it. I can I can give you the um, you know if, if all of the breakdown of those drugs and the kinds of side effects people report. But at no point could I tell you about the experience of using that drug until I used it. Okay. It's yeah. simply, it's simply oh, okay. not possible. In intellectual yeah. pursuit, 
cannot open certain doors. Correct. Yeah, you're talking about experiential knowledge uh, or knowledge by acquaintance. Um, yeah, the, yeah, I would agree. So, okay. so yeah. you are you are asking people to open up an intellectual door to something that simply isn't behind that door. Um, I would I would argue that this thing that you are calling religious truth is simply not a, an, an intellectual pursuit. Um, and so no matter how much people try to meet your intellectual standard, they are still never going to get to a place where you would be satisfied that they're spiritually uh, mature uh, or even capable or knowledgeable because the intellect is the wrong pursuit of that. It's, it's like trying to find God via science. You, as a Christian, I would have said you can't find God in the lab. A scientist uh, is is the wrong person to try to find God. If they do find God, they're not going to find it using their scientific methods. I think the same thing is true with intellect. And so I think that your argument is largely wrong-headed there when you're trying to push people toward greater and greater intellectual pursuit to to find God in religious truth. Okay. So yeah, and that's absolutely wrong. Actually, it's. So long as we're not saying that they're mutually exclusive, no, the intellect is absolutely a part of necessary part of the journey because religious truth involves not just experiential forms of knowledge, but also propositional knowledge. There are certain propositions that one comes to and also coming to knowledge of certain propositions can affect certain forms of experiential knowledge. Um, you know, that, that's why when people read the propositions in the Bible, it speaks to them on an emotional level, not just intellectually. Um, so the, they interact with each other. You, you seem to think that they're mutual emotions or spiritual, experiential forms of knowledge are totally mutually exclusive from intellectual forms, and they're not. They relate to each other. They're integrated. Um, and once the, once you achieve both forms of knowledge, that's when it comes together and you can become a born again Christian or whatever it is. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll come back to this one. I can see that we're not going to um, really have a meeting of the minds here because I think we're talking past each other a little bit. I, I think that we will be able to tease this out um, a little more, a little uh, later, but if I can, if I can move on to the next point, which is kind of tied to this a little bit, yeah. Um, in an effort to maybe tease out uh, a broader thought, uh, you were you had mentioned earlier uh, about this idea of um, people objecting to your style of sticking to your guns when there were uh, other people, uh, your peers, who um, who had a different view. What did you call that? You had a, a more elegant way of talking about that. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of the epistemology of peer disagreement, you can either take a uh, conformist or conciliatory or conformist viewpoint, which is what right. you take, and then I take the steadfast view. Okay. So, um, first of all, I don't know that it's fair to say that I take the conciliatory or conformist view. Oh, okay. uh, no, I don't. I, I think you're miscategorizing me <laughs> there. Okay. Um, I do sometimes. Uh, especially in areas that I don't know a lot about, so uh, I have to I have to go with the consensus because I don't I don't really have anything to contribute. Um, 
so yeah, in in matters of astrophysics, I'm 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 most likely going to go with the consensus there because I don't uh, have anything reasonable to to contribute to that discussion. But there are other things that I know quite a bit about, uh, and I would not take a, a conformist view, even when there are peers uh, who disagree with me. So I I don't I think I don't think it's fair to label me as one or the other. And I don't think it's wise to label yourself as one of the yeah, other. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that said, um, my my objection, uh, I know that you were fielding the objections of a lot of people who uh, were in the forum, but my objection, so that you understand it's a little bit more nuanced, is not just that you were sticking to your guns when others, uh, when other peers disagree. My objection is, as an outsider looking in, uh, without the expertise in this matter, I have no way of knowing which of you is right. Now, in terms of science, uh, and I'm just, I'm just going to combine this with the scientism uh, discussion because I think it all goes together. Um, in terms of science, we do have ways of finding out who's right. You know, if 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 people are disagreeing over things where uh, empirical knowledge can be had, we can we can do the experiments. We can we can do the maths. You know, we can we can actually figure out who's right or wrong. There is there is an answer that we can come to. In matters of religion, I, there's no way uh, we can figure out who's right or wrong. Now you seem to think that there is, and this is what I was talking about earlier when uh, I'm saying intellect doesn't doesn't solve these religious truths. Uh, I have no idea whether you're right or William Lane Craig is right or uh, Matt Delahunty is right. I have no idea. Do, you know, do I default to the one with the highest degree? Well, you're saying, well, no, not that. But then again, you're saying intellect is a part of it, so I should default to the smartest one in the room. Um, but no, so I can't do that. So how do I do it? Well, do I run it through a lab and see who got the right numbers? No, it's not subject to laboratory experience or mathematics or anything empirical at all. So then how do I do it? So when you are, when Christians are giving different answers for, to the same question that are, that are incompatible, we non-believers have a right to throw up our hands and say, either you need to be more uh, epistemologically uh, humble, or you need to recognize that we, as the listener to this debate, have no idea and basis of deciding which one of you is right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I will to engage with that. I think that is a good point, uh, half, a good half point. So, number one, yes. Um, my, my main point here is that we as individuals have to do the best we can um, to interact with that. You, you can't just give up so however even interacting with the reasons of contrary scholars it might be something is is beyond you as david said that there are uh things where i'm just i don't know i've looked at the reasons as best i can and i i'm just like well i, I don't know so i i do adopt a conformist view i i don't have a belief either way i i don't know exactly what the answer is um, but I'm open to learning uh, if new reasons come and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there, I do admit that there are times where uh, you don't have to take a position. You don't have to go 
oh shoot, who, who do I believe? I, I don't know uh, what the reasons are, but I'll just pick this one and remain steadfast or that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I don't know is a valid option to take if, if you've studied the reasons to the best of your ability and you just don't know who's right. Um, however, when you're evaluating, you do need to evaluate those reasons. You, you can't just throw up your hands and go, well, scholar Craig Keener thinks Acts is historical. Uh, Richard Pervo thinks it's not historical. I don't know who that, what, what's going on. So uh, that's the wrong thing to do. The thing is, look at what Richard Pervo says, look at what Craig Keener says and, and others to the best of your ability and see if you can make up your mind as to what you think is it, true. And that's where I think that your answer goes off the rails and becomes very naive. Um, so I understand, I actually do understand what you're saying there, but I don't think that you understand what you're saying there. Richard Pervo and Craig Keener have spent significant parts of their life, uh, certainly more parts of their life than I have time for to research uh, these issues. They also might have a significantly higher IQ than I do. So they've spent longer and have more resources to work these things out. I do not have the beginnings of the ability to go behind their work and see which one of them I think is right. I don't. It will take me four years of college just to understand the issues. Um, well, that that's not true. You you can see popular level stuff. You don't have to study it. I've read lots of popular level stuff, so I I want to just right. cut you off there. I've read plenty of popular level stuff. I've read some academic level stuff, and I can tell you right now, people who think that they understand these issues by reading the popular level stuff are deluding themselves. You don't under. They might after 500 pages of popular level, popular level stuff, be able to lay out some of the issues that they have been studying for the last eight years. But that does not catch you up with the study that they have done for the last eight years. You are not even conversant to talk about that issue after reading popular level material. Yeah, but you are allowed to make a... You don't have to become a scholar to have a belief. Um, or to be warranted. In but you do kind of have to be a scholar to understand what the scholars are on about. Because they understand what they're on about. <laughs> okay, yeah. they, So they have these debates, and they're using language that you think you understand. You do not. Now, you might, but the, the one listening to this podcast, the average person who has not misspent most of their life doing this stuff, does not even know what they are on about. But you, the, you just think you do. Popular. They provide, I provide sources. I, I submit that people understand, understand, you know, what the YouTube source, like when I give my sources, I very, I try very hard. I don't always follow through with this because I, I don't find it, but I try on whatever issue for and against, I'll try to find a scholar who's written something. Then I'll try to find a, a long video, one hour to two hours. Then I'll try, I'll try to provide a half hour video. And then are a five to ten minute video or a short video, something like that. Um, that's my ideal when I'm looking for sources, so it appeals to everyone based on their circumstances. I appreciate that. I and I, I look. I'm. We're not. We're not debating on whether popular level material is out there. We're debating on how effective that is in giving people the opportunity to adjudicate between two scholars. It does not. It, I I believe that it gives them a less, a much less opportunity to do that than you do. You you think that those popular level sources somehow makes them uh, able to sit on a panel and decide who's right? 
Well, they, they have to recognize uh, the limitations of what they're able to do, right? Like I, I recognize I'm I, I like I, I like that you guys are being charitable and, and saying I'm I'm smart and, and that sort of thing. But at the very best, I'm at an intermediate level that that's the height of my like I'm not gonna ever be on Craig Keener's level or something like that very probably um unless I get education or something like that it, but I'll, I'll never I actually disagree I think that you are on Craig Keener's level because you're both discussing fantasies I don't I don't think that <laughs> I don't so I don't I, you know who's well, who's more not, right about Harry Potter Keener, though, right you're not on his level so you can't judge uh, Craig Keener as a fantasy or not <laughs> well in, in in this case Craig Keener is probably a bad example for me to poke at because he's a historian and so he's not necessarily talking about whether the stuff is true but whether he's he's talking about criteria of, of historicity, so it's it's a different conversation, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's probably not fair to conflate those two things. I can talk about Craig Keener's level as a theologian. I can't talk about Craig Keener's level as a historian. Yeah, as so, as a theologian, you're, I assure you, you're both on equal footing. So put it so put it nice. Uh, so so put it this way: um, part of the evaluation of the evidence is you need to assess whether you have a sufficient basis to make a to make a judgment and i don't think that we are oh you have to be at a scholarly level of understanding i'll never read the classical literature that craig keener has i, I just reading reading um polybius's histories doesn't appeal to me or tacitus me either. Or, <laughs> i'm sorry um, yeah, it, it just doesn't appeal to me. The thing well, is, I like history, and I'm never going to go that deep into it. I'm just, it's never going to happen. I don't have time. Uh, yeah, and that's exactly the same, the true of me. Like, I, I'm interested, I love documentaries. I, okay, here's a quote from Dio Cassius as to what he says happened, but I'm, I'm not going to read his multiple volumes of Roman history. Um, so I'll never be on Craig Keener's. But that's in that that's not necessary for me to have a sufficient judgment on well, is a is an event that he reports true or not based on the evidence? Um, same with Jesus mythicism. David will never be on Richard Carrier's level or or that sort of thing, but he thinks he he has the right to remain steadfast. He knows through first person knowledge if he treated the material fairly on both sides. So so remember, I gave those criteria that we can look at and we can, to the best of our ability, evaluate. We can see, are the are these people actually epistemic peers? Uh, are they relying on any outside knowledge? Um, do they have any evident bias? I've heard skeptics claim Christian apologists are biased right out of the gate. I remember after Lydia, D- Darren came on and, oh, she should never talk about what real history is. She's just a Christian apologist. J- Jim makes this artificial distinction between a Christian apologist versus the real historians, the, the skeptics and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, well, you, you I, I, I do actually uh, agree with him that there is it's dangerous to mix uh, Christian apology with secular history. It, it you you yourself, even as an expert, don't know which one you're doing at any given moment. Right. So so my general point here is, yeah, you can you can evaluate that bias. You can be aware. Look, this guy is a Christian apologist. There is a biased motivation here. So that that doesn't mean they're wrong or I'm wrong necessarily but you can be aware look there's that bias there it, and to be I clear can, i'm not saying that you're wrong 
So yeah. not in this point. Don't, yeah. I don't want to confuse the audience. Dale is wrong about everything. Right? Let's, oh, let's just be well, clear. David is a brilliant man. So I guess I'm wrong, but okay. <laughs> um, he is wrong about almost everything. So. And I am. I, I don't care at this point. The, but, the the, but that's point. not the argument that I'm making. So the, the last objection uh, when we uh, talked, I'm not even saying that you're wrong about human not uh, reaching uh, the, the level where we're supposed to be. Now, I think you are wrong. I'm saying that that's a claim. But in the grand scheme of things, for this objection that I'm making, I have no way of evaluating your claim. So let's say that you're right by accident. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter because I have no way of validating it. I don't, I don't know whether you're right or not. Um, why, why do you... Okay, so... Why do you you made a claim about evolution, very strong claim when, in our last rebuttal? Yes, you're not a scientist. You're you're not on the same level as Doctor uh, William Dembski or Michael Behe versus Richard Dawkins uh, or you know uh, Pigliucci, uh, Massimo Pigliucci or, or something like that. Why don't you just remain agnostic? Why why do you actually remain steadfast? No evolution as uh, I don't remain steadfast. I uh, I go with a consensus. Well, that's, you're 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 misreading um, my take on evolution. So you don't evaluate the reasons that the these scholars present. You just yes. go well, the majority. Well, then why don't you just do that with the Jesus historicity? You're a Jesus mythicist. The majority of biblical scholars. But just I know, but I know more about that than I know about. Uh, science now I know a little bit about science but I don't want to I don't even want to, I don't like saying that in public I, I wouldn't tell you my reading list because you might think that I'm claiming a higher level of knowledge than I have uh, so I don't I don't even I would rather people think I'm a scientific neophyte than to, to than to accidentally claim more uh, than I am in that field. But I would say that as a lay person who just kind of is a, is a fan of the material, um, I, I know a pretty good deal about the subject matter, but I don't base it on my opinions and scientific observations. That said, I think I do have some scientific observations. And if we were having a podcast or discussion over, you know, our personal barroom level scientific observations, I think I could make a pretty strong case for evolution, okay. but that's but, not I mean, why I, I believe in evolution. If, well, <laughs> so. when we're, if we're doing uh, season two there, I, I do have contacts with Michael Behe and Dembski, so I can bring them on. Um, you guys can Okay, do but I'm not going to, I'm not going to debate a scientist Oh, because I'm not well, a scientist. Well, we, okay, well, we could probe, do a probing interview. I mean, why, would I, why would I do that? That would be, that's crazy. Because we want to learn. Because this is my point. This is why I'm doing this. Get in there. Don't just. Okay, I do get in there. You have no idea. I'm, I'm trying to tell you. I get, no, I, my, my study on science is way higher than the average person on this. I've, I have, uh, in fact, I, I feel like I've probably maxed out. Uh, my knowledge on a lot of this stuff. 
But what I am telling you is that is not why I believe in evolution. <laughs> Even though that is, that is also the conclusion I come to, I, I still don't claim to know enough to, to land on that conclusion with just my knowledge and experience. So I still lean on um, the consensus. Okay, so I, I would just say, yeah, well, you need to evaluate the consensus thing because that's a poor argument. It, it's a bad argument to take. Well, scientific uh, consensus is a bad argument. I, yeah, I'm not even going to chase it. We'll just leave that there. Fine. All right, but that's... You need, you need to evaluate the reasons. I mean, there's been I do. scientific consensuses that have been proven wrong time and time again. Right, and, I, and if I had agreed with them, I would have been wrong. But that would have been the best I could have done at the time. Well, I, I would remain agnostic in that position. If Because if, what you're saying is, look, I've done the research. I respect the heck of that. That's my main point is you skeptics and Christians, you get out there and do your best. Maybe at the end of that, you'll come to David's conclusion, which is just, look, I, I don't know enough. I, I, I From my research, I've learned that I do not have a sufficient base to make a decision. I'm just going to remain agnostic. Okay, that that can happen. But you need to get out there and do it. You, you can't just go... Scientific consensus believes in the ether in, in the 1800s. I guess there's an ether. Uh, that's the wrong thing to do. You, you demand, no, I want reasons. And I'm echoing Lawrence Krauss. He says the same thing. He's like, don't just believe me or the scientific consensus. Look at my reasons for what I'm saying. Yeah, I've read Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I suspect much of the audience has too. Um, and – I suspect much of our audience, which is very technical and uh, contrary to what you think, very educated. Uh, I suspect they've done, you know, a lot of the same reading and research as I have, but they're not scientists either. Most of them, some of them are, uh, and they definitely have a right to a scholarly opinion on some of this stuff. But most people simply don't. This is rarefied air. Um, you know, we can talk about Einstein's theory of evolution all day and never explain it. Um, one of the one of the great quotes about e equals mc squared. Uh, I can't remember who made it way back in the day. Uh, they were musing that uh, yes, uh, this uh, theory of rel relativity. There, there are three people uh, who know it well. Uh, there's there's Einstein and me and uh, someone else. That that I assume is out there, <laughs> and, and and that's you know this this is of course comical, but this is um, this is just to illustrate how difficult this stuff really is. And you might understand the the basic gloss of it, but when you get deep enough into it, you, you recognize that there is only a tiny percentage of the population who can talk about this stuff in a truly conversant way. And at the end of the day, no matter what you've gleaned from your reading a few popular level books, it does not equal you having a right to an opinion on what the truth of the matter is or not. And that's, this is why we have tools like scientific consensus, because the people who have devoted their lives to these things, we can kind of see where they are, and we can look at the discussions that they have, at least the parts of the discussions that we can understand. And we can say, you know what, 90% of um, the scientists who have devoted their lives in this field believe this about this. And these are people in different areas of science. They keep coming up with the same conclusion again and again and again. This is where evolution is. We, we have valid grounds to uh, accept the theory of evolution. 
Um, you, you don't, in fact, have to be a scientist, and you don't have to remain agnostic. The consensus is overwhelming. You would have to have a good reason to say that you're agnostic about it, and that would, that would be to take a faith position that, there may, that it may not be true. But I, I, don't, I don't think that there is, in fact, a good reason to remain agnostic about that, whereas there is a good reason to remain agnostic over string theory. And that's a, that's a theory that I happen to like. Um, I wish I could say I believe it. I, I, I want to believe it. But it's, um, it's a minority view, and it's, it's, it's got a long ways before it gets to the point of consensus. Okay, so so I'm generalizing it. You're not disagreeing with me. You're, you're evaluating what I said. Okay, yeah, you, you evaluate whether you have a sufficient base uh, or not. Uh, now, we can quibble over whether merely appear, appealing to a scientific consensus is good enough. I don't think it is because it's been proven to be false time and time again. Uh, there's also the issue of bias, uh, which I've discovered against the intelligent design movement. I, I think that scientific consensus is, is a good indicator. It, it doesn't mean it determines one's beliefs, but it's an indicator that, hey, there must be something here to look at. Um, that's the way I use a consensus. Um, but we can quibble on that. But the point is, you're, you're agreeing with me. Look, you, you think consensus is a reason to believe something. Oh, okay, whatever. I, I disagree with, but let's pretend that is. That's fine. So you you, I'm demanding that you ask for reasons. Don't just go, oh, someone disagrees, therefore I don't know. Um, evaluate the reasons for, for and against as best you can um, and evaluate whether you think you have that sufficient base and remain steadfast in that belief unless and until you have reason to change your mind. Okay, and just so, just so that the listener doesn't get lost in all of this, this was part of my objection uh, to part of my pushback to what you were saying, uh, and I, I was simply pointing out that you were you were talking about uh, matters of religion that cannot be validated in some other in some other way. Uh, intellectual pursuit doesn't help us validate that. And we you know we can get smarter in in maths, we can get smarter in sciences, we can get smarter in history, but it doesn't actually help us validate religious claims. Um, and so uh, when oh, people no. when people of making different religious claims uh, are are trying to vie for our attention in our agreement, there is no mechanism like science. To figure out which one is right, um, there's there's no way to conclude that, and so that that was my ultimate point. I didn't want that to get, uh, I didn't want that to get lost. I said that I would roll scientism up in here, but the next time I come back, I will I will uh, attack scientism. Um, in the meantime, do you have another rebuttal f- for me? Okay, so your next thing is uh, be true to your morality. Okay, so now we can talk about this directly uh, even though it was hinted at before so um, be true to your morality yes uh, God created us with a moral conscience that provides us with moral knowledge uh, absolutely I would follow that even against um, the Bible in some in certain circumstances if I'm if the Bible said uh, look uh, either one plus one equals two so it violates my rational faculties or on a moral sense, if it says 
if it orders me to go around raping every person in existence or um, I wouldn't do that or to torture innocent babies for fun I wouldn't do that my moral conscience is providing me with a sufficient amount of knowledge in that case to overturn propositional knowledge from a, a book which is provably tainted with human corrupt humanity in certain places um, so yeah you you follow um, the evidence as best you can the, from all the various sources of knowledge that God provides you to come to moral knowledge. Um, now you have to recognize, but I think that comes, look, you need to recognize morality is just as tainted um, to greater and lesser extents in certain humans uh, as the Bible is corrupted with corrupt errors in humans and stuff like that, humanity as well. Uh, Adolf Hitler thought he was doing the moral thing uh, he really did. He believed he, that Aryan race, this is the future, man. This is progressing towards human perfection, getting rid of all these, uh, you know, he classified the Jews first, blacks, homosexuals, all of that. He had like a list of who to get rid of first, who was the worst uh, of the scum of humanity, so to speak, um, in order to bring about that state of perfection. So it's obvious that our moral consciences are not infallible. And you need to recognize that um, when making moral decisions. So always being true to your, your moral sense is not necessarily always the right thing to do. It could lead us into moral error and often does. Um, you know, I, I'm a case in point for you skeptics. You, you think I'm making a moral error judgment and with my Molinistic Defeater, for example. Um, and I just wanted to point out that isn't me being biased as a Christian. I had that opinion before I was a Christian. Even if you converted me to being an atheist, I would still have that opinion. If a morally perfect God, and I had knowledge that a morally perfect God told me to do it, I would do it. Uh, even if I'm an atheist and I don't believe that there is such a God, I would still answer the same way. So that it isn't a Christian bias uh, with my answer here. Um, so, so yeah, I think... It depends to what degree of certainty you have on morality. Uh, are you 100% certain this is wrong, 95%? Uh, some areas are moral gray zones. Maybe you're 60, 40, so you know, divine revelation can trump that uh, if you have good reason to suppose that God would now not allow moral commandment errors in the Bible. I'm 95% certain God wouldn't allow that because that would cause undue confusion. Um, so there... If I had, if I was 60% sure, let's say, for example, that uh, a certain command in the Bible was immoral based on my moral conscience, I would privilege the Bible over that because I have more sufficient warrant to believe that the moral knowledge in that is more reliable, is probably more reliable than my moral conscience is telling me. On the flip side, if I was 97% sure that doing something was wrong based on my moral conscience. Um, while I'm only 95% sure that the Bible provides good moral knowledge, I would privilege my conscience over the Bible. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's my main point is recognize, look, our, we are morally fallible. Our, our moral conscience is not a, an infallible guide to moral behavior in every case. Okay, so um, allow me to pull a Justin Brierling um, in one of the worst things I think he does. Um, 
I have a point to it, though, and I don't think he does. Um, can you tell me why rape is wrong? Because you said that you wouldn't go around raping people, um, mm -hmm. even if you were told to do so. Why? Why is rape wrong? Yeah, so, so if you remember, um, when I was giving my Molinistic Defeater, um, this came up between me and Sarah. I remember sort of questioning, well, isn't the salvation of a soul worth the temporary punishment of, of raping? Why do I allow it? Why am I cool with killing, the taking of a human life, but raping is a no? And I, I sort of wrestled back and forth. And I remember coming back, I'm like, my answer is no, you, you can't do that after thinking about it. And Sarah was like, well, what's the difference? Why, from a rational perspective, what is the difference? And the only thing I could say is, well, look, I'm, I'm a deontologist, so a rule-based ethics. My moral conscience provides me with strong enough moral knowledge, so beyond 95%, that doing so is wrong. No, so I, sorry, I, I, would, you, would you explain deontology? Deontology, so in, in ethics, I, I think we've gone into that into the show. So deontology is rule-based ethics. So it's you have certain necessary moral rules that come from God and, you know, he provides you moral duties and that sort of thing. He's the foundation of morality. It is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not rape. Uh, this is deontology. So there, there is no thou shalt not rape, but go ahead. But I was putting it in as an example, right? Sure. I'm, I'm just clarifying for the reader who thinks the Bible says thou shalt not rape. It does not. Good for you. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know um, that Christians don't read their Bible. I think it's there. Yeah, it's and, there. and for my case, though, I, I think that, uh, no, yeah, good for you, literally. Yeah, that is good to clarify. Um, but in addition to that, I'm also a virtue ethicist. So why do we follow the rules? Because it creates certain virtues um, within us, character traits that are fit for heaven. This is why I follow these necessary moral principles and necessary moral duties that God creates for us and that sort of thing so um yeah that that's how i see morality working what what was your question in yeah why is rape wrong yeah um so the way i i'm not going to answer why is rape wrong i think you want to know how do i know rape is wrong is that really what you're asking uh, well i don't know I, because you you saying that you're a deontologist doesn't help because there is no rule that says rape is wrong so uh I'm trying to figure out uh, why you think it's wrong. If there's no specific rule that says it's wrong. Um, there's, a, there's a rule. No. It's not the Bible. Okay, so it's, if, so it's not in the Bible. It's, so, it's not explicitly in the Bible, put it right, that way. Right. right. So we, we, we agree with that. Um, and so you can come around the mountain and get to rape being wrong uh, by other means, in, indirectly. Yes, but that's not exactly the deontology uh, way to do it. So I am I am still trying to understand at the heart of it why the oh. Christian would think that rape is wrong. Now I understand why the humanist would think that, um, but right. Justin asks this as some kind of gotcha, as if to say, "Well, we have no reason to think it's wrong." And I would actually say the shoes on the other foot here. Um, so I'm, I've never actually asked a Christian in this situation why you think rape is wrong, but I've always wanted to. And I'm trying to get a sense of this because you're attacking yeah. human morality. And I say human morality is far higher than, than any sacred morality that you get from your God or the Bible or anything else. So why do you think it's wrong? 
Right. So, so deontol- a deontological apo- approach, it's not just moral duties or specific explicit commandments and rules. There, there are also rules for following moral principles, the high, moral duties and, and actions on a, a tactile level, as I call it. Okay. okay. So what is the moral principle then that makes rape wrong? So there are multiple ones. Principle of benef- ben, uh, beneficence or the principle of malfeasance. Um, okay, well, wait, okay. These are great pieces of terminology here, but how do we know that rape isn't beneficent or uh, that it is uh, malfeasance? Who, who's to say that it is? Well, in the first place, you can observe the effects that it's it's harmful to human beings. It causes harm to them. Uh, it obviously violates the, their autonomy. They're not consenting. Well, I understand that they that the people raped don't like it because that's the you know it's essentially what rape is. It's um, violating a person's will, and so if they wanted it, it wouldn't be rape. Um, so you know, it would be a rape fantasy, but it wouldn't be rape. Um, but you're not telling me why violating a person's will is wrong. You spank a child; they don't want to be spanked. I've never met a child that wanted to be spanked. So. Um, yep. You know why is rape wrong? Right. So, so because we know that the through our moral conscience, this is this is the avenue for our knowledge, our warrant. Um, I know that you deny that as fantasy. I don't. Most people, I think, common sense don't, including skeptics that deny it. Really, actually, borrow. I think necessary moral principles, necessary moral. Let's say why is it why is it necessary? You're, I mean, you're using a lot of jargon, which is kind of what you do. But you haven't you haven't even approached the question. You haven't even glanced it's at it. It's <laughs> no, saying it's necessary has answered the question. It doesn't make any sense to ask why is it necessary. It does. Why is it necessary? Why I don't understand why it's necessary to not rape. Necessary for what? Now, as a, as a humanist, once again, I can answer that. I can, I have no problem with answering it. But as a Christian, I don't understand quite how you get there. Because I can I can say it's necessary for a good society that we don't that we are not. Uh, walking in fear that our that our women who are depending on us are getting raped, uh, you know, every ten minutes. That that would that would make it very hard to do business or leave the house and go to work. What if um, we set aside one day for raping, or like a special special holidays for raping? <laughs> maybe maybe you should propose that. It's been proposed in science fiction. It doesn't work out real well uh, in those situations either. Uh, see Star Trek's. Uh, I can't remember the name of the episode where they had their uh, I want to say their festival uh, <laughs> the original um, uh, TOS no yeah. no no the original TOS series um, yeah so we've it's not like we haven't explored uh, this idea never never turns out particularly well but so once again I can make a case as a secular humanist for why rape is a really bad idea but I have yet to hear a Christian Explain to me why it's wrong. The only answer, let me help you out. The only answer you can give and the one that you're dancing around trying not to give because you know that uh, it would be hollow is because God, because it violates God's will because God says so. That's, that's, 
that's actually the only answer that you can give. But if you want to continue trying to give some other answer besides that, I, I extend the question a little bit further. Why do you think it's wrong? Right. So, so in the first place, atheists can't uh, provide a foundation. That, that's just pathetic. As to good societies, why is that necessarily, logically necessarily? So it's true in every logically possible world that a good society is one in which people aren't raped. I mean, you, you can't prove that. That's your number one pitfall. The, the ultimate lens of saying, is something good for human well-being and flourishing, that's good. That's just a presupposition. Well, I can say we've tried it in this society, in this world, and we found that it uh, didn't work. Not raping works better than raping. I don't, I don't think I have to say that it couldn't possibly work, but we've never we made it work. Work towards what end? I'm saying you can't justify... But I don't have to. I don't have to have a justifiable magical end. I can say that as far as you know, more humans being happy and societies being functional and doing the things that we want to do as a society, uh, it works better to not rape than rape. I don't have to go any further than that. Yes, you uh, do. You want to claim more? No, knowledge. you do. <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get there afterwards. But I'm saying okay. no, you do. You have to. This is why it gets brought up all the time because you guys can't. It's, it's impossible for you to provide that – to answer the epistemic chain regress problem. But I am not saying that it is a, a magical universal moral principle. I don't care about what you think is moral in that sense because I think your idea of morality is warped. The very, I think your very definition of morality is warped. But, so I'm, I'm not – no, no, no. You need – this is important. I'm not trying to satisfy the Christian idea of morality. All I have to do is explain why it is better not to rape than to rape. And I can do that in secular human terms. You are the one banging on that it is a, an immoral, universally wrong thing to do. And I am trying to figure out how you get there. I'm going to get there. Can, can I talk? You have to let me talk. For well, okay, you've been talking. You just haven't gotten there. So go. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If you were, if you were right there, go go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Right, so, so David, so David admits uh, he can't provide a necessary foundation for morality. He can only go so far in saying, "Well, we've tried rape, and it doesn't lead to a quote unquote good society, or it doesn't lead to human well being and flourishing." But he can't answer. Well, who cares? Why should I care about human well-being and flourishing? He just has to say, well, that's uh, that's just a given. We, we can't ask questions. Therefore, he can't have knowledge. He can't have make a knowledge claim to anything in morality, any judgments against the Bible. He cannot sustain that on an epistemic level in terms of claiming it is absolutely wrong to not support anything that uh, hinder to support anything that hinders human well-being and flourishing. So that's the atheist part. How do I? It's it's arbitrary. It's an arbitrary standard. I have a necessary, logically necessary standard. God is the ground for all necessary moral truths. That includes necessary moral principles. And well, for the record, I think I could probably make a case that it's also logically necessary. I am simply saying that I don't have to. I don't, I don't have to go that extra step as a secular humanist uh, making this argument. And as far as why, uh, you know, when the, when the Christian asks, well, why shouldn't I? I would say that you'd just be a horrible person, in my opinion. I wouldn't want you to live in my society. I don't, I don't actually need to deal with the, the logical baggage that you're 
going to try to bring to the table. Um, you, you do if you care about interacting with Christians and engaging with Christians, though. But it, I'm fascinated. So you, you do think um, the standard of human well-being and flourishing is, is logically necessary, moral. Um, in some, so you're sort of like an atheist. I don't. I don't even use the word morality in my day to day life. I talk in terms of ethics. When you talk about morality, you're talking about something that's supernatural. You are not. You are not, in fact, engaging with the natural world when you use the word morality. So I understand the baggage that you put in there, oh, oh, and I avoid that baggage. Okay, so you don't mean logically necessary. I guess you mean factually necessary, given the laws of nature, given this universe. Yes. Okay. I am speaking okay, naturalistically. Okay. I'm, well, then that's still arbitrary and un, uninteresting to the Christian. They, okay. That, but if the Christian the is uninterested in what is uh, fruitful in the natural world, fuck the Christian. And I hope that you're rounded up and put in concentration camps <laughs> where you don't have any uh, attachment to the natural world. Because I, I don't want you running around uh, anywhere near my kids or my friend's kids if you don't have <laughs> – if, if you think that it's okay to rape people and that you need some kind of logical baggage to keep you from doing it, screw that. <laughs> you, you, need a, uh, you need an epistemic foundation upon which to claim moral knowledge uh, for these facts, and they're aligned. Okay. The necessary moral principles are aligned to what we observe as being good or bad in reality. So you can do both. I'm, I'm not saying ignore observations. Remember, that's how I first. Okay. So look, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you. You keep saying that I can't prove this or that. And I'm waiting for you to answer the question of why rape is wrong. No, I was just about to. Okay. Right? I, I know. It's, always, it's right around the corner. Go for it. No, but I've already started. Stop okay. pretending I didn't answer that. I have. Okay. Well, I didn't, I didn't catch it. Um, <laughs> I can't manipulate them. This is not hypnosis. Just rewind it. And listen. <laughs> I know, but the, okay. Um, so, so I guess it is contentious. Very good. Um, God is the foundation. You wanted to hear it goes back to God. God is the foundation for necessary moral truths. Necessary moral truths include necessary moral principles and necessary moral duties. Um, on an epist that's the ontological aspect of of morality. How do we know? That there are necess that there even are necessary moral principles, let alone what are those principles? That that was your original question that I was responding to, right? How, how do I know the principle of autonomy is something we shouldn't violate, or the principle of beneficence? We should, you know, try to do beneficial things for other hum for humans and other sentient creatures, or that sort of thing. Um, that's through our moral conscience. This is the on an epistemic level how we arrive at moral knowledge. This is how it works. Um, we can also supplement that through proposition, moral propositional knowledge, through the relevance, re relevant circumstances that, that apply to the moral situation at hand, through divine revelation, the, the source of morality himself, the ontological source of morality of these necessary moral principles and duties provides us with actual explicit duties, uh, or provides us with principles in the in his divine revelation which we can extrapolate to modern situations and that sort of thing so that's that's the question of ontologically how do we justify or warrant necessary moral principles and on an epistemic level how do we as human beings get to have moral knowledge of what those principles are and how they work does that satisfactorily? I answer? didn't even understand half of what you said. Oh no! Okay. Um. <laughs> so I'm I'm sorry. I I would not claim ignorance if I was not ignorant. I am a very proud person, um, 
and uh, talking to you just just lets me know uh, that I need to read some more books. <laughs> so okay, well, it's, it's my feeling too. Okay, I'll I'll try one more time, and I'll if I fail this time, then I just suck as a communicator, I guess. And I will. I mean, I think if this is what the Christian has to do to explain why rape is wrong, I think it's all it's already uh, self evident that there's something wrong with their argument. I, I don't know why. I, okay, so in the first place, you, you understand the distinction between the ontology question, right? That's what the moral argument's getting at versus the epistemological issue of how humans come to have moral knowledge. Um, do, do you understand the distinction and, and which of the two are you really interested in getting at here? Barely, and I'm not sure. Um Okay. So, yeah, so the the moral argument is trying to establish that there is a foundation, yes, an objective foundation for where where moral principles live. It is not trying to determine what those moral principles are. The epistemic question is a question of what those moral principles are and how we come to know what they are. Um Okay, well, I, I would say the what those moral principles are could could also be considered part of the ontological part, um, but the epistemological part is is specifically how do we come to know as human beings? How do I know what those principles? Okay, are? because I've never I've, when I when I debated with Randall Rouser on Unbelievable, he tried to make this hard distinction between the ontological portion and yes. the epistemic portion, and when I was bringing up things that I, you know, he was saying, no, 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 this is not about what is moral and what isn't. It's about the basis of how we can know what, uh, yes. yep. uh so I don't, I, I right. don't actually, okay, well, then I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> so put it this way. So in your blog, you seem to primarily be, um, addressing the epistemological connection, or at least in what you said, I'm just scanning. Over I am now. pretty much always addressing the epistemological, mostly. I don't actually care about the ontological. Okay. Uh, I think the ontological is just BS. Uh, it has never been explained in a way that makes any sense to me that there is some kind of um, foundational standard for yes. assessing morality. Um, yeah. So Christ, Christians can't explain that. At the end of the day, it, it's magic, magic, magic. Uh, my magic God uh, is is the embodiment of goodness, and so whatever he says is good is good. Whatever he does is good because he is the essence of good, uh, and so that's morality. That that is not an explanation for me at all. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think I think you're right because even even on the ontolo ontological aspect, like with the moral argument premise number two of someone like William Lane Craig's argument will be objective or what I prefer necessary moral truths, principles and duties do exist. Oh, well, how do you prove that that premise is sound? And I think the main area that the, the only area that William Lane Craig gives, and there are other sources of, of um, knowledge to warrant that premise. But I, I think the best that I appeal to uh, is look, through our moral conscience. This is how we know that there are necessary moral truths um, or principles and duties like the principle of autonomy or or the principle of beneficence, which you what what you call human well-being and 
uh, and flourishing. Right, uh, but I would I would say that that sense that what you what you consider an innate sense is just human evolution at work, because we have not always had that innate sense. Uh, we right. we so, used so to we we used to yep. believe that a lot of yep, things were okay, and uh, we came to realize well maybe that's not okay. And so then the question becomes well over the last two hundred thousand years, how did we come to realize that uh, you know bopping a woman over the head and dragging her in a cave is maybe not a a good thing? Well, it's not because God spoke to us and said no 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 don't do that. It we had to develop that knowledge. Over hundreds of thousands of years uh, in, in social experimentation to see what brought us to the kind of society we wanted to live in. No, that didn't drop down from heaven. We, we, we had to work very hard to gain that knowledge, and we um, weeded out uh, through a very natural selection process those who couldn't get it through their thick skulls, and we breeded uh, those who could. Sure. And, and so yeah. that that is why we have this knowledge now that says, oh, well, rape is wrong. So, OK, so so you're alluding to, look, there's moral disagreements and there's moral development. Um, some of our moral knowledge is derivative forms of knowledge, right? We, we extrapolate or we learn through experience uh, about certain things. Absolutely. That's true. And we have to remember um, moral dis- there are three sources of moral disagreement, as I explained to Smalley and that sort of thing. And we have to assess and look at, okay, well, why um, do certain people do things that we feel are immoral um, and try to come to an understanding of, of how that comes about because we are sinful. Um, so, for example, the es- I think it's the Eskimos. They used to kill their own children uh, or one of their own children on a regular basis i can't remember exactly about it but uh, you know horrified westerners these barbarians oh my gosh they're killing people their own kids and stuff like that but when they researched into it they found out now first of all i still think that was wrong um but they had a moral justification um as to why they're doing it they they thought well this is the only way the entire family can survive i i don't have enough food to feed everyone Therefore, by killing one of the people, uh, the others will get to serve. I'll have enough food to feed my other three kids or something like that. So they felt it was morally justified. And under that lens, okay, we can get an understanding of the relevant circumstances, morally relevant circumstances, and, and go through the areas to find out why this disagreement is happening in light of moral principles, uh, and then evaluate what is the correct moral action to take so so i i see the moral actions are dependent on the higher moral principles and it's not clear to me at all that human beings once they have a proper understanding of the moral principles i don't think they they we do disagree on the moral principles themselves um that that could be controversial um right but, but I, I i think i uh, look i can ride with you uh through most of this which is why i'm uh kind of shortcutting the process a little bit because we've been talking for three hours and we've got another three hours to go. Um, just kidding, folks. Only another hour and a half. Um, but the the fact is uh, if that we agree on many of these principles does not 
does not help because you take it an extra step. When I say you, I mean the Christian. You take it an extra step by saying the reason we agree on these principles is magic because, because God gave them to us. And that's where I would say you've taken it a step too far. Uh, I don't. I don't need to go with God gave them to us in order to say rape is wrong, and you apparently do. Um, so, so you're sort of questioning the nature of it, but uh, so that so that's the ontological aspect, then, right? That's where the moral argument comes in to say, well, we need a proper foundation if these things are. are true that your our moral conscience attests to these things premise to the moral argument right but you see part of the part of the problem and this is again where randall rouser and other christians start cutting in and objecting is when i say okay so if these things are coming from god then why can't christians agree on these overarching principles because there are there are certain principles that it seems like would would uh, create a uniformity of behavior and opinion at the very least, even even if they don't live it out to perfection, they should at least agree on these God given principles. And yet, uh, your conscience does not agree on certain principles. Abortion would be one of those uh, areas where forget us atheists, you Christians can't figure it out, can't decide whether it's right or wrong. Homosexuality, Christians are about 50, 50. You can't figure it out, uh, whether it's right or wrong. And so you're saying that there is this, this overarching source of unifying objective moral code, but the Christians are downloading it, uh, differently. Right. So, yeah, so so that would be at the level of tactile morality, what I call tactile morality, not necessarily the principles that they're disagreeing on. Like the principles, th- this isn't a Christian thing. This this is general ethics or philosophy, moral philosophy. But well, yeah, what I would just call humanity. Uh, but but you're not satisfied to talk about it in terms of humanity. You're you think that there's something beyond that. And then yeah. I, I would argue, no, the reason we disagree on these things is because there is no such thing as a unified moral principle uh, that's objective out there. We, we have to figure it out and work it out and understand what kind of societies we want to have and what kind of people we want to be. Uh, and you think that there is something beyond that. But you're you're not providing me with any evidence of that except, well, you know, we've got these consciences, except our consciences don't agree. So you're, you're not giving me any reason to believe that there's anything objective about morality. No, but you, you do. So our consciences do agree on the moral principles. They disagree at the tactile level. And, um, okay. the, well, then this are, is this is a piece of academic me, jargon that I don't understand. So, so I let me explain using the abortion example. Then, okay. Right? So you you said you said earlier in this podcast. Look, I, I can agree with the principle of autonomy. Yeah. In general, it's better for sentient agents to have the autonomy to choose to do whatever or refrain from doing whatever they're capable of doing or and desire to do so. Right. I don't get that from the Bible, but I I do I, I do believe that, that is I believe that that is I believe that that is a true statement. What you just said, I believe it is antithetical to Scripture. I, I don't care about that at this point. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. So so your moral conscience attests that. There's also a principle of life, which I'm sure you'll agree with, uh, because you disagree with my Molinistic defeater like crazy. And in general, unless there's a, a moral justification to do otherwise, uh, we should preserve 
life, human life, and, and not take human life uh, without a, a moral justification like war or something like that. Um, these are the two principles that are involved, and there may be others as well, depending on the circumstances, but to keep it simple, here are two principles that I believe 95 to 99% of all human beings through their moral conscience will agree with these higher principles, but, oh, they disagree with abortion. And it's because these two principles conflict. So it's, this is, well, all three sources of moral disagreement are possible, right? We may disagree about the facts. Well, is a fetus a human being or, or not? Does it have a soul or not? Um, these, these are facts more of the morally relevant circumstances that might play a role. Uh, or the uh, moral principles conflict with each other. And we have to evaluate, well, is preserving human life or the principle of life more important than a woman's right to choose and her autonomy? Um, and people have differences of opinions due to the noetic effects of, of sin and the effects of sin on our moral conscience. So this is where on a tactile level these disagreements come into play. Okay, but I, I think you're oversimplifying. Uh, so just with what you're saying about life, you know, that's something that we all agree with. All right, life is better than death and life is, you know, whatever. I, I actually don't. Um, I'm not a lifist in, in that sense. <laughs> so I don't, I don't actually think that life is somehow uh, inviolable and sacred and whatever. And in fact, I think that there are plenty, plenty of examples of life that have struggled into this world that we should eradicate before they get to draw their second breath. Um, now, I'm not thinking of a humans when I say that uh, in, in particular. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, viruses, bacteria. Well, that's life. Uh, it, it made it into this world. It, it got here, baby. Smash it before it multiplies is my, um, my feeling on that. I think that there are certain creatures in the wild that, um, you know, to, to near human habitats and, you know, God bless them. Uh, but we need more alligator belts and alligator soup and fewer alligators. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not. I don't actually believe that life is some kind of sacred or inviolable principle um, that we've got to respect, be, you know, to, to some extreme extent. That's a good point. And so that's, I skipped over that. Uh, so that, but that's the second, second of the three areas that ca causes of moral disagreement, right? We, you can question the nature of the moral principle. So, you would just modify, okay, well, it's not a principle of life, but it's a principle of human life or sentient life uh, or something like that. So you, you would just qualify what that principle is. There are people that might even deny, like for a time I did, I, I denied that there even was a principle of life and it was more a principle of existence that I saw it as, which is roughly the same thing, but... I just saw, okay, but we're not taking out their existence. We're just converting their mode of existence or something. So, right. so this would be a cause of uh, moral disagreement. But, yeah, our, our consciences are still attesting to these higher principles which determine on a lower level our moral action. Okay, but I can give you more examples of where I wouldn't – uh, necessarily agree even with your modified versions of higher principles. For instance, I don't care if um, viruses became sentient. I'd still kill them. <laughs> so um, there's, I mean, you can't, there's, we can, we can, 
I think that we can find agreement on moral principles. I'm just saying there's nothing innate about it. We have to have these conversations in order to do it. Why, why would you kill virus? It's assuming self-defense. So you have a moral justification that exempts. Yeah, this. well, but you're assuming that self-defense is a moral justification. How do we know that? Well, we've got to have a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely, right? And There's nothing innate about it is what I'm saying. This is not – you don't learn it because God, God – God does not answer anything with regard to these moral questions. Well, he – yeah, he does. Our, our moral conscience is once we – through discussion, through discussion of the morally relevant circumstances um, and, and the fact – getting a better understanding of – the various factual disagreements, right? Uh, th this can cause one to change their their mind or not. Like, uh, you know, a cer certain bacteria are good for us. I, I wouldn't, if they became sentient, I would want to preserve them because they're beneficial. They don't actually harm. Right, but they don't have to become sentient. I want to preserve them anyway because they are good for us. Um, so <laughs> we so don't it's all arbitrary. It's, it's what's good for you. Yes, of course it's arbitrary. This is, this is in fact, um, the position of someone who doesn't believe in objective morality. I, I understand that there is a part of it that is some, that might seem arbitrary and that it's not written in the stars. We have to talk about it. We have to work through it. Uh, we have to figure it out. It's, it's social. Uh, versus pro-social, this is why I don't use terms like morality. Because when you talk about morality, you have taken it out of the realm of the human experience. And you're talking about something supernatural. When you're talking about ethics and social versus pro-social behavior, now you're talking about something at the level of a human being. Okay, so so I'll, I'll just end with this then. So you're, you are human well-being and flourishing and or David's well-being and flourishing if, if you want to get really specific whatever but right you are espousing this almost as though it's a necessary moral truth via your moral conscience now you don't want to say that so you say no well it's not really that it's just a factually necessary contingent fact of our physical universe that we happen to inhabit this is where it that's what I say is arbitrary, and that's why it's not satisfactory to Christians, and, and never will be. You will okay, always. But the Christian answer is also arbitrary. You remember, uh, I started this section by asking you to tell me why rape is wrong, and you still haven't done it in a way that satisfies me, and I doubt that it satisfies uh, the skeptic. Uh, so it's it's arbitrary for you too. Uh, no, it's it's directly necessary. I'm claiming it's. Necessary. You may take issue and say, "Well, I don't believe that." That that's fine. But well, but you haven't explained how it's necessary. So uh, how is it necessary? Yeah, ne or, or, or why it's necessary? You haven't explained any of that. You that's you appeal to our existential angst that that we don't want. Uh, most of us don't want to go around raping people, and most of us don't want our, the people that we love to be raped. I understand that. That's a very natural feeling. But I don't need God to tell me that no human needs God to tell them that. And so, um, if that's all you're appealing to, then my point stands, be true to your morality and don't let some God figure try to, uh, confuse you about what is right and what is wrong. You don't need it. You don't need him to know that rape is wrong. You don't need him to know that slavery is wrong. And when you see that his moral intuition in the Bible 
falls beneath yours, you should dump the one in the Bible and trust yours. Okay, so so this I'll let this be my last word before we move on to the next part then. Um, so look, I've explained ontologically uh, that God is the, morality is necessary and it's founded, ontologically speaking, in God's nature. Necessity, it doesn't make any sense to ask why is something necessary. It's just necessary. That's the nature of necessity. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, why is one plus one equal two? Uh, because it necessarily is on a logical level. Um, so that explains the ontological aspect. Epistemologically, I've explained that we have access to these necessary moral truths through our moral conscience. I failed to mention this part, though, and it's a good point. We also have other forms of knowledge outside of our moral consciences are tainted by sin. It doesn't provide infallible or exhaustive moral knowledge in all cases. So it is supplemented by human experience and, and learning new things. Um, you know, new experiences like the internet. They, these are moral questions on a tactile level no one's ever asked until recently because it didn't exist. Um, second, we also have divine revelation. The, the moral lawgiver himself is divinely giving us direct tactile moral commandments or, or moral duties. Um, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt not kill. Okay, I, not only is my moral conscience telling me that's wrong because it violates the principle, but God himself has written in a, a book, don't do that. Thou shalt not bear false witness That's uh, or lie. That's something that, believe it or not, I would have, my moral conscience didn't give me a full understanding of um, until it was supplemented by the uh, the Bible. So I, I believe there is a principle of truth. Um, however, how would I have defined that? I would have allowed for qualifications. I, I think it's cool, it, not cool, it's not morally ideal, but it's morally permissible to lie. I mean, if I'm going to say you can kill someone to save as many souls as possible, then I certainly, my moral conscience tells me it's certainly okay to lie uh, and tell the sky is red in order to save as many souls as possible. Um, but, um, the well, okay, so it is it is cool for humans, but there's a difference there that God can't do that. And it's only from divine revelation that I learned that, that the principle of truth is absolute. Uh, there is no qualification or exemption to that principle. Otherwise, God would be able to lie to save as many souls as possible. And I wouldn't have come to that knowledge from my own moral conscience alone. Uh, it was only through divine revelation supplementing my moral conscience telling me, well, there's a principle of truth that I was able, well, how do we define that principle of truth as being absolute or is it qualified or, or something? And, oh, well, because the Bible says God can't lie, it's not qualified. Therefore, I, I'm violating that principle every time I lie, no matter what it's for. That's a deontological absolute rule. Um, so, this is so exactly a perfect example of why I say your morality, Mr. Human, is far better than when you try to couple it with some biblical principle like this mess that we just heard about lying. Lying is a good thing, and societies wouldn't be able to so survive without it. There are different kinds of lies, different kinds. I used to be uh, as naive as Dale here for the for much the same reasons, by the way, similar thought processes. And so um, 
I'm not beating him up as a human being, but I recognize uh, the oatmeal that this stuff makes of your brain and your ability to think when you take it too seriously. Of course we need to lie. Of course, if your wife asks you if that dress makes her look fat, the answer is no. You look beautiful, honey. That's the answer. And if you have any other answer, screw you. I will not attend your divorce. Um, it, that should happen. And I will testify against you. And she'll take the kids and the dog. You fool. Of course the answer is that that's a beautiful dress. After she has slaved for three hours in the kitchen to make that gosh awful Disgusting, vomitous soup. You had better, you had better say that that is the best soup you've ever had. Fuck you if you don't. That's the wrong answer. And so I'm just saying, I'm sorry. Well, Fudge let, you if you don't. I've never to leave it to be Let me clarify something here because I, I recognize reality. I, I wouldn't do it in the cases you're saying, and that's probably a good thing why I'm going to be single for, uh, I'm single right now. But um, yeah. I, I think that there are occasions where he, if, if someone put a gun to David's head and said, lie, tell me the sky's red, I would lie. Um, I wouldn't say that's the moral thing to do, though. I'm, I'm still violating a moral principle, and I'm sinning when I do that, but I'm doing the lesser of two evils. So that there is that conflicting, there, there are different ways to see the moral principles and the moral hierarchy, and I, I take a conflicting approach so so yeah i i would still be doing something wrong but i would doing be doing the lesser of two evils because i'm sinning if i don't lie and allow david to get killed so on a human level um there are things where we have to sin but god can't sin so he can't violate a moral principle and that's why it's important as to how we learn to qualify the, the remarks so the principle of life has to be qualified with unless there is moral justification to do so, which we all know that there are certain moral justifications. To and where do we get those moral justifications? We derive them ourselves. This is, this is my point always is what it was in the first place. I'm not entirely sure what this rebuttal is about. Follow your own conscience. Even when you're wrong, you're right more often than that freaking book. Do you need me to respond? So, so no, the not really. Of, the opposite of what David said. Just <laughs> the Bible is. If you believe the Bible is divine revelation, and it's contingent upon that, I don't expect atheists to go to it for for moral knowledge. Um, and I wouldn't say you know homosexuality is wrong. David R. Cut it out. Um, no, he doesn't. It's just a book to him. So you, you need to start with proving that it's true. Yeah, it's just a book for everybody. So if you're sitting on the fence and you're looking at the arrow of human moral progress, uh, look at look at uh, that arrow and look at where that book sits. Um, it's it's stood in the way of moral progress. Uh, I argue more often than it has pointed us in the right direction. I will take your sinful conscience over that book's advice every time. And you should too. Not if you have sufficient reason to believe it is divinely revealed from a morally perfect God, though. Um, if, if you have sufficient reason to believe that, then you're a fool. If you privilege your conscience 
in every single set of circumstances over and against the Bible. And by the way, for, for Christians, I think you are a fool if you privilege the Bible in every set of circumstances over and against your own conscience. Um, so let me give that to the skeptics because the Bible is a does have some provable errors in it. It is not a perfectly it is not an inerrant book. Um, so it's possible that it, it's a very unlikely. You know, 90, I'm 95 percent certain it doesn't, but it's possible that there are moral commandment errors in the Bible. It's possible homosexuality is not a sin in the Bible. That was just a reflection of ancient Near Eastern thinking. Um, and if your moral conscience provides you with knowledge that's stronger than that 95% certainty that the Bible is inerrant in that way, it, with the moral commandments, then you privilege your conscience over over that. So, yeah, that's my final take. Okay. So I've only got one more objection to yours. Um, I So my very last note that I wrote is – Lots of time spent questioning the validity of science. <laughs> so okay. I, I, I just want to point out, I'm not, I'm not going to <clears throat> flesh that out, but uh, Dale's speech spent an awful lot of time questioning the validity of science and trying to compare science to philosophy. You see, it's the same thing. Um, no, it's not. And you should, you should be suspicious of that. But um, the, the place where I want to end, because there was so much of um, – uh, science talk and intellect talk in Dale's argument is scientism. This is something that uh, you know a few shows have been done on, not necessarily skeptics and seekers, uh, but um, I've I've talked about it uh, a lot and written about it a lot lately. Uh, Christians have seemed to be uh, on it about it lately, and so I'm ju- I'm going to ask Dale the question here. Um, that I couldn't get other people to answer on discussion boards and so forth. Maybe he will. I actually think I know what his answer is, but I want to give him a chance to say it out loud, which is, um, which is this. So I, I'm not saying that science is going to always come up with perfect answers because it doesn't. Uh, I talk about the scientific method as the best way to come up with empirical uh, information that we can trust about the universe. And sometimes we get it wrong, and sometimes we ask a type of question that cannot at this time be answered by science and possibly can, can't be answered by anything. But the question that I would ask Dale is when, when science fails to give you the right answer or if you think that that is not the only way or the best way to inquire about a particular thing, what is your alternative to science? logic and philosophy because logic is a proper discipline of philosophy okay so give me an example where um in in terms of religion where logic uh is superior to science well yeah well in the first place science is derivative from logic well Uh, okay but i think you understand the question but i and i want to keep us on on point so give me an example where you would have a religious question where science doesn't give you the answer but some other thing does sure so our our question on the ontological argument or or the nature of logically possible worlds is, is it possible for me to be wearing a red shirt at 1237 on may 18th 2019 
when you answer no, um, I think that's that's indicative of, of a problem. Science can't answer that type of question. Um, there, yeah, it it's a proper domain of philosophical or logical reasoning as to how we evaluate something like that. So there's one example. Okay, I don't. I don't fully understand your example, but then I think that we've established in this podcast that I am a blooming idiot um, who needs to read more books. <laughs> so I think I think higher of you guys and and yeah, the the audience, I guess. Like I, I do think that they're sure. I, I sometimes use technical jargon, but I don't I, understand your I don't, example in the least bit. I don't understand. Um, how I specifically ask for a religious question that can't be asked answered by science that can be answered by something else, and and, and you give me logical possible worlds. <laughs> this is, this is I can assure you I have never preached a sermon on logical possible worlds. Maybe I was a bad preacher, but I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do with that answer. <laughs> okay, well I'm not. I guess I didn't understand what you meant by religious. I was conflating it with philosophical or well i think that is in fact something you do all the time as you conflate religion with philosophy but yeah try to try to answer that question in the spirit intended give me because this is the spirit that it's used uh okay when christians talk about scientism what they are saying is you know our god can't be proved there uh, and so they say that it's not uh, useful because, it, you know, and they think that everything has to be proven by science. They're scientific. Screw that. Okay, give me a real actual example of a religious problem that can be solved some other way besides science. Just give it to me. And, and the example I gave wasn't like the ontological a logical possible world come on the ontological <laughs> argument that's that, even the ontological religious. argument is not a religious question it's a philosophical question that is okay. not a question that you are going to hear in a church with with people trying or, to struggle or, with their bills okay well what about here's a another uh, this is philosophical i was going to say the anti-realism realism debate. oh god you're getting worse what <laughs> Uh, these have religious. Do you know what religion is? <laughs> okay, the morality. Uh, it, science doesn't speak to morality at all, uh, or values. Um, yeah, it. it okay, reduces, Sam Harris disagrees with them you. Them to but okay. descriptive. What? I said Sam Harris disagrees with you, but okay, I, I will. Oh, I will okay. Begin uh, to... So conformist. Uh, there's an expert that disagrees. I abandon my belief. I retract. Oh, okay. About All right. time. <laughs> <laughs> you heard him. You heard him say it, people. <laughs> you, you should have just told me people disagree. Oh, <laughs> I've been trying to. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, okay, so you think that morality is something that's outside of the domain of science, but you think religion can give a better answer. So what? how, how is religion a form of – so science is a methodology for obtaining knowledge. Yes. What do, what do you think the methodology of obtaining moral knowledge is? Because I'm trying to figure out what, you, what you're putting up as an alternative to science. Yeah, so the methodology from moral knowledge is what we've been discussing this whole time. It's through the moral principles, our moral conscience, um, supplementing with the knowledge about the factual, morally relevant circumstances that apply. Um, so 
yeah, the, these are certain methodologies that we have to come to certain knowledge. It's because it's our moral consciences are within us. It's more direct. It, it's on the level of properly basic beliefs. We we just know okay. that properly basic beliefs. That's that's something I can get a fistful of. Yeah, it, it is. But um, this once again, this is where it all it it always comes back to that for you. Well, how, um, well, how about um, well, how, yeah, I don't know what you're going to consider philosophy versus religion. I don't know. Have you, have, you, have you been to a church? Have you sat in a Sunday school? Have you have you? I mean, honestly, like Jesus died for our sins. I, like, I don't know what you're. Okay, like, well, there, I mean, there's. Or creation. That, that's definitely a creation. That's a, that's a religious idea, I suppose. I'm I'm just trying to figure out where it is Christians are saying that science is so insufficient in it, to figure out what they're putting in its place. It it seems to be a pretty straightforward request since Christians are always right. banging on about how bad science is at you know figuring this stuff out. And since you spent an hour talking about it. Um, you know, in suggesting that, you know, we atheists are just scientistic and we're not really looking at the other alternatives. I'm trying to get a good sense of what you think the alternatives are. Right. So philosophy and logic is, is what I was saying. That's the second order discipline that that is the normative discipline um, that provides the justifications of the presuppositions, the scientific method, the historical method are all based or derive from from that. And so so the, is it fair for me to say that if um, if science doesn't give you a favorable answer for your religious uh, claims, then use philosophy, and that will serve as just as good an answer as a scientific answer would in other fields. Um, well, I think philosophy provides us in some cases better. Uh, it, it depends on what the question you're asking is, right? So. So, so uh, philosophy is the validation of religion in the same way that science is the validation for matter. Well, philo philosophy is the validation of science as well. It, it's the valid logic, put it this way, that logic is the validation that underpins science. It underpins religion. Uh, okay, it underp so what I, what I just said is accurate then. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get at a reasonable statement that I can use to understand your position that you think that philosophy is a way of finding uh, uh, truths about metaphysical ideas. And physical ideas as well, right? Like, that's, there's a reason why there's a philosophy of science, right? Because the, this is where I get into the external philosophy of science view versus the internal philosophy of science view. Not everything reduces down to proper scientific methodology um there, there isn't even a such thing as this the scientific methodology there are multiple methodologies that was one of my other points as well i, I mean the multiverse probably doesn't fit into uh the standard scientific method that you learn back in high school and that sort of thing um it's not observable it's not a repeatable thing it, it's not something that we can measure that sort of thing, right? It's it's, it's a scientific model. No, I don't. Well, okay, yes, but I don't. It, well, anyway, go ahead. So I, I'm my main point here is not so much about religion. I, I didn't even have like a religious methodology in mind. I, I could come up. Well, we have divine revelation. That's a 
a method for coming to knowledge in religion uh, and that sort of thing. But everything is underpinned by logic. God is a logical being by a necessity of his own nature. That's why the, the laws of logic, just like the laws of morality, are grounded in God on an ontological level. Um, so, so logic is what I'm trying to say. It's broader than just science. Science is a great tool. Um, it uses the laws of logic to validate its presuppositions. Religion can use logic to validate its history. Can use logic to validate its presuppositions. Right? It, it uses in, inductive forms of reasoning and inference to the best explanation and various criteria like explanatory powers, scope. Okay, so I, w I would just say that I think you are conflating um, empirical observation and logic. They're, they're not the same things. And I think that the reason you are doing that is to try to uh, privilege the religious position as being equal to any other position because, look, you see, it uses the same methodology. It's the same as science. And that is just not true at any level. Uh, but I am happy to let the audience hear you say that and and wrestle with that because I, th I think that's um, that's fine. I, and, and I would warn the audience that anyone who comes to you who wants to either deprecate uh, science uh, or elevate something else as being equal to science is someone that you should probably uh, avoid allowing to teach your kids. Uh, true things about the world yeah so I, yeah i think that's absolutely foolish so that this is the internal philosophy of science view right and no it logic is what you should privilege the scientific method derives from epistemic logical law, laws of logic um or philosophical debates about realism versus anti-realism for example um it, it utilizes different forms of logical reasoning, deductive reasoning, um, it, statistical, in, inductive and deductive statistical reasonings. Um, it, all of the methods, science is a great tool. I, I don't want it, I'm not denigrating science as a valid avenue for knowledge. Uh, so I, don't, I hope that's not what you're getting. But I, my main point is to get people to stop being stuck skeptics stop being stuck in this mode of oh this is the only way to come to knowledge if you come to knowledge in any way that's not quote unquote scientific or considered part of a scientific method one of the scientific methodologies then it's irrelevant no it's logic that underpins that and logic can be applied to various disciplines history in different ways science and theology or religious uh, beliefs um, so don't don't be closed-minded and just assert, assume, oh, there's only empirical reality and and the scientific method is the only valid path to coming to knowledge. No, go deeper to the higher order of logic, and that's what'll get you truth and and apply that to various disciplines and various claims. Okay, so um, do you have uh, one more for me? That's the last one I've got for you. Okay. Um, so yeah, all through your senses, I think was your last point. Oh, be true to the search. Yes. It? Yes. Uh, we can try to take both of those uh, because they're they're both important. So if you want to uh, 
rebut both of those. We'll just do them back to back. Okay, so so be true to your senses. So this sort of does relate to the empiricism or scientism debate that we were just talking about. Yes, right. Um, so look, there on t- most rational people, most experts in the world um, are on what are called ontologists. They hold that there's physical reality and um, abstract entities, the numbers or propositions, relation, universal relations, and uh, these sort of things, modal logic and, and you know stuff like that also exist and are, are real entities for investigation. Um, so that's, I take the ontologist position. Um, a lot of most atheists, uh, lay atheists, and a lot of atheist scientists like Peter Atkins or Richard Dawkins, they'll take the naturalist point of view and they'll say only things that you can access with your five senses and or apply the scientific method to, those are the only real entities. Physical, material reality is, is the only thing. And um, I would say be true to your senses, not just with physical reality, but also be true to your senses, your moral senses, through your moral conscience, um, your modal evaluating faculty senses tell you about what's possible. If you're forced to the absurd position that you think it's logically impossible uh, that someone wears a red shirt or that um, there could be a, I, I don't know, I could be wearing green shoes or something like that. You've been pushed to a, an absurd place where you're denying your your own intuitional knowledge uh, and senses. Uh, I have free will. Um, you know, I, I made the claim in my series. It's it's obvious. It, all of these things, uh, David and skeptics will say, no, these are all illusions. The only thing that's real is this f- physical stuff that is privy to scientific investigation. Uh, no, don't be so limited. Don't be. Don't deny your senses as to uh, the nature of reality, uh, and and put this artificial distinction um, between "quote unquote" plausible and "quote unquote" fanciful, as Val would call it, uh, explanations. If it's logically possible, then it's it's something that's a real entity that needs to be taken into consideration, regardless of whether it's abstract or physical. It doesn't matter. Uh, so that's my my take on that. Don't deny your senses that you have free will or, or that there's moral truths and that sort of thing. Um, be true to the search. Well, hold, hold on. Do, do I get to respond to that? Yeah. yeah I thought okay. you needed to do both at once. Though, so. Well, yeah. So I, But I, I think there's – this is kind of a continuation of the last discussion <laughs> uh, a little bit. So I do um, – I do think that we have a hard difference of opinion here that can't be sussed out this season. Uh, there was an episode that uh, Dale and I were going to do on uh, on this subject, uh, these these ontological realities, quote-unquote, uh, numbers, um, things of that, things of that nature. Uh, and we did not... Uh, get to do it and so i'm not going to try to cram all of that here uh but i i would take issue with his idea that most people are on 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 the ontological side of this i don't i don't know that that's 
uh, the case at all. He would have to show his work there. Um, most philosophers, num- at least say that. Okay, well, maybe maybe most philosophers. I, I don't know what philosophers do in the dark of night. So um, that that said, uh, I we do have a hard difference of opinion. So when when you when you look at the argument from numbers, which I always thought was a bad argument, even when I was a Christian. So I have not actually changed my opinion. Uh, on this from from Christian to non-Christian. So you do not have to hold um, Dale's opinion to be be faithful to Christianity here. Um, But I I don't think that numbers are things. Numbers are not things. And I think that what Dale uh, conflates, and when I say Dale here, I mean people who who, uh, take this argument, uh, I think they conflate... um, abstract ideas with things. So it's it's not actually the materialist that's saying everything is a thing. It's it's actually the Christian that's trying to to um say that everything is a thing. Every idea is a thing. It's personified or re, re, made real in some way in in some realm. So love is not just a um a reaction of chemicals and a description of uh, feelings uh, in human relationships. No, no. It is a thing in and of itself uh, that, that we can have in excess or not have, but, it, but, it's, but it's actually a thing. And so the number three is not just the relationship between uh, an item and, a non, and another item and another item. No, three is a thing that is uh, made real somehow in the universe. Um, and so even if you took away all the things, there would still be three as a, as a thing kind of, kind of thing. This is, this is just a very uh, different way of viewing things than I think that most ordinary people uh, view it. It's a much deeper conversation than... Uh, we're going to be able to take on, but yeah, I would say that when you're starting, when you when you conflate abstract ideas like morality, ethics, pro-social versus uh, antisocial behavior, and you and you say, oh well, that's a thing that has to be reckoned with in the world, um, then I th- I think that you are going into uh, the realm of fantasy and you're leaving. Um, uh, Real world things, but I'm uh, but I'm happy to leave this argument incomplete. I just want to to uh, I just wanted to flesh out what that argument really was was about underneath. I'll tr- I'll try to for the audience. I'll try to give uh, a, a great video as by William Lane Craig that I noticed I, I linked to before, but no one clicked on it. I, if you're interested in this, you should really look at it um, on divine aseity. Um So yeah, totally apart from looking at God's divine aseity, he does get into the realist and anti-realist debate of, of things like a, of abstract entities. So I, I take the position I'm a realist uh, and I'm a divine conceptual conceptualist. So these things exist as thoughts in the mind of God, um, but there are different positions. Um, William Lane Craig takes a different position. He's an anti-realist um, of some version. So so yeah, I'll provide a source if you're interested in that. You can look into that a little bit and get extrapolate what we're sort of getting at here but yeah my, my main point was just to implore skeptics don't deny your your experiences don't 
assume or assert that, oh, it's just, these are just illusions because they're a different type of entity to physical things or entities. Uh, yeah, don't, don't deny the... A concept is not a thing, people. Um, an emotion is not a thing. These are, these, are, these are descriptions of things and or properties of things, but they are not themselves things. Descriptions and properties are not things that exist supernaturally in the mind of um, a god. They're they're just descriptions and properties. They're nothing you, more than and, that. But you don't you don't have to take my view. I, I wasn't. The point isn't about divine aseity and or saying whether they're supernatural. But yeah, they are things. That that's the nature of the debate. Uh, how do you define a thing? Um, right. So so. I mean, one plus one equals two is not nothing. It's not a no thing. It it actually is a no thing. It is a dis, it is a description. That is that is all it is. Three describes a thing associated with another thing associated with another thing. It's just a word we use to describe that. It is not in and of itself a thing. That with, if you take away the three things, there is no three. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. So that's what the debate is about there. Um, now, being true to the search, what was your argument? No. What was your What was your argument against about the search again? Oh yeah. Um, that was that was among my finer moments, and uh, they just slipped right past you, huh? Um, well, I, I had sorry. points for all of them, but I, I didn't write them down. So. Oh, you didn't write them down. So I am actually the only one that took notes here. Which is weird because I never take notes, and uh, Dale is always banging away on his notes. Um, so uh, interesting little inside baseball there. That's not important yeah. to you. I, I usually take notes by hand, though, so I didn't have any paper or anything. I, I, yeah, that's uh, blame David for waking me up early before I ate breakfast. Yeah, like the usual time we usually uh, talk about these podcasts. Um, make so <laughs> make your make your search falsifiable. Rather oh. than philosophical, so we've already talked about uh, this a little bit. Um, philosophy is not, in fact, equal to uh, something that's tangible. So, if you are making a claim of something that's tangible, don't accept philosophy as an answer to your search. If if God answers prayers and that's a part of your religion, that's not a philosophical claim at all. That's a claim uh, of the real world find a way to test it. Uh, so don't accept philosophy uh, for falsifiable claims. Otherwise, uh, it's not a real search. It's gotcha. a faith position. Um, while we're at it, a true search is for things with real answers that can be verified. So if you, if you say that you're on a search for metaphysical truths, but there's no way to actually get a real metaphysical answer that can be verified, then at the end of the day, you're just going to end up with a faith position, and it's not a real search. Um, and then C was uh, when you find the answer, stop searching. You guessed it. Otherwise, it wasn't a real search. It's just a faith position. Because if you keep searching after you found your answer, but you don't like your answer, and so you keep searching, then it's not a real search. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, my first point is complete utter bunk. Uh, when you say that philosophy is unfalsifiable or, or not confirmable, who said that? 
Uh, there are many ways. You disagree with me on philosophy. Shocking. Yeah, no, but uh, I'm sorry. I mean, there there have been many ways, and you have provided. Have you listened to season one of Skeptics and Seekers? You provided many types of ways to try and falsify various theological or philosophical claims I, I've made. Um, so yeah, it is falsifiable in principle, and often religious claims are falsif- falsified. Um, in certain ways, so and we don't disagree. Then uh, make make your search something that can end in a falsifiable result. It's, but I, I think we need to be open to the truth, even of unfalsifiable claims. And we've agreed on that. That unfalsifiability is not the be all and end all of uh, scientific truth. I mean, of true truth. Regarding even in science, there are different positions between a Karl Popper falsificationist point of view. Um, versus a justificationist uh, with, you know, people like, um, what's his name, Carl Hempel, for example. Um, so, yeah, there, there are different takes on that. And falsification is a helpful tool for arriving at knowledge, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, unfalsifiable things can be proven true. Uh, it can be tr- it can be uh, true. So, yeah, don't... <laughs> so- just um, yeah, so be be suspicious of uh, your supernatural uh, claims of supernatural things that can't be falsifiable. Uh, so it, I would agree with Dale that it doesn't mean that it can't be true. There are lots of things that are true that we can't prove. But you, but you, you are in a position to not know that they're true. So you. Are, you cannot then say, uh, you know, assume that you're going to have a higher degree of certainty than uh, than you would with things that are falsifiable. You can't have as high a degree of certainty because it's simply not falsifiable. It's not provable. So, yeah, it's like looking at a jar of jelly beans and saying, I think there are 1,049 jelly beans in there. Um, well, if you can never open the jar you never count them, then that's an unfalsifiable claim. Here's the thing. You might be right. doesn't matter. You don't uh, have uh, the privileged position of knowing that you're right, and so it's it's a bad claim, even if it happens to be true. Right, but you can also confirm things um, without falsifying others that are related claims. So, you know, with justificationism, for example... You can get various positive test results that are related to something that you can't falsify. And then through that, you justify your faith in in that unfalsifiable claim. Um, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I'm yeah, thinking that, along that, the lines of my Molinistic defeater. Yeah, that, doesn't, yeah that's, that doesn't sound right to me at all. Um, so. It's not science does this all the time. Okay. This is a position of science. And, and, science. and what I and what I am warning, which is uh, what I said before, get get a falsifiable. If you're if you're searching for things for claims that make uh, actual tangible claims, then uh, your search needs to end in something falsify a falsifiable result and not something that's merely philosophical. Uh, the thing that you need to be aware of with philosophical uh, answers to things is the smartest person in the room wins. So you can say, well, good philosophy points to truth no matter who the smartest person in the room is, but you won't know it. 
you can listen to a debate and you can think, well, one person won, um, clearly won the debate uh, because they were the smartest person in the room. But they may be dead wrong. Uh, so getting answers based on philosophy just largely depends on how privileged you are to have the right kind of mind to sort out whether the philosophy is perfect or not. Uh, with falsifiable claims, uh, the stove is hot. You just put your hand on the stove. You got it. You got it worked out. Um, and so go with falsifiable claims when possible. They are superior, to, superior uh, in the real world philosophical claims about things that are tangible. Um, so, so no, so I, I'll, I don't know if I get the last word. Uh, like I thought when it's your claim, I get the last word. And then on my claim, you I get the, care who gets the last word. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you can take it. The last it's, word. It's, it's the last show. I don't care. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's not the case about falsificationism necessarily. Yes. It's a good tool. It's, it's preferable if you can get it, take, take it. Um, but what we should be looking at is a justificationist uh, perspective. Uh, if you can confirm your theory is true, either directly or indirectly, and you can confirm that to greater and greater degrees, that's when you're justified in doing it. Um, falsification, the principle of falsification is just another way of potentially confirming um, that a claim is true. So it's, yeah, that's not the be all end all. Don't dismiss philosophical claims willy-nilly like what david wants to have you do there mm -hmm. um the last the last point here uh, uh, there, there are two others actually so a true search is for things with real answers that can be verified and you're probably thinking that those two things are the same thing and they're very close but i think that there are a lot of people who think that any question that you can formulate makes for a good question a good search and i disagree with that entirely so you you are not necessarily on a true, good, reasonable, rational search simply because you are trying to figure out, um, you know, some you know how many grains of sand are on Mars. It's not a it's not a true search. It's not a good search. It's a stupid search. It's a waste of your time. There's no way to verify the answer. Shut up and move on to a real search. Because if you're going to try to come up with an answer to that question, uh, other than going to Mars and counting the grains of sand then you're just going to end up in a faith position. So make sure that the question that you're asking is one that can actually be answered. Okay, so, yeah, here's your a skeptical assumption. You, you say, assume that uh, all these religious or philosophical claims can't be confirmed. I didn't say that. I didn't say that in that objection, although I do, I, I do tend to think that. I am simply... Uh, uh, in joining the reader to the listener to think seriously about the kinds of questions that you're asking and the kinds of things you're searching for. You call it a search and you elevate it as something uh, virtuous that you are searching for this thing. But ask yourself, is this thing something that can actually be ascertained? And if it is not, it is not a search that you are on at all. You are just on a faith position. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, the last point that you brought up was when you finished your search, stop. Yes. Uh, okay, so, great. Uh, that that seems like a bit hypocritical to me because you would never say that about me. Uh, yes, I you would. would. Never say you, you think I should just stop and, oh, I've done my work. Um, yes, I would. Let me, let, me, let me flesh that out for you uh, because I think that uh, you have a, a misunderstanding about – um, me on this and, and have all season, frankly. Um, 
I so let me let me put this in terms of the pro Christian position. If you have made whatever you consider an honest search for God, and you believe that to the best of your ability you have found the answer and there is a God, do not keep searching. Except that there is a God. The only reason you wouldn't accept it is because you have reason to doubt your answer. Mm. So if you don't doubt your answer, stop searching and then deal with the reality of that God. Now, I would still say that doesn't mean that you become a Christian because you've found a God. There are other questions that you need to ask uh, before you become a Christian. The existence of God simply is the be- kind of the beginning of that. And it's, it's a, it's a major thing to accomplish, but it doesn't end your uh, your search there as, as far as Christianity goes. Because that's, that's another question entirely. But you should not spend the rest of your life bellyaching over whether there is a God or not unless you have reason that comes up later on that makes you doubt your original answer. So, yes, do your search Stop searching, live with your consequences, and move on to the next thing. This is just as true for uh, for atheists. If you have done your honest search for a God, and at the end of it, you are convinced that you have done uh, the best search you can and you have found no God, stop searching and live your life accordingly. To do anything else is just a faith position saying that you should keep looking for a God. And there is no reason why you should unless you doubt your results. In, in which case, you didn't really do a good search. Okay. Um, I, I think I agree and possibly disagree. So I, I think the way you said it, yeah... Let's put it this way. If, if you've got 100% warrant that atheism is true or, or that God exists or he doesn't exist or something, for example, uh, yeah, you stop right there. Um, just be careful of the distinction between warrant and, and mere psychological certainty, though. Um, just, as long as you're mindful about that, make sure that you're trying to achieve warrant. And, and if I've got 100% warrant about 1 plus 1 equaling 2 and not 3, I don't need to investigate that anymore. My search has stopped uh, before it even began, so to speak, um, on that question. Um, however, if you're anything less than that, then you, you have to remain open because there there's that inherent doubt. Even if it's 1%, uh, well, there's that 1% doubt that maybe Christianity is false or maybe God doesn't exist or Islam is false or something or, or atheism is false. Um, then yeah, you, you need to remain open. Um, now I, I don't, as I've tried to explain, I, I have my real secret criteria and the most controversial, I think, I, I hope I've read the audience is it's not so much being open, um, or being willing to obey the truth and that sort of thing. It's the second one of being actively seeking. Well, what does that mean? And, and, I'm constantly, oh, you got to be in a library for the rest of your life. you got to get a PhD in philosophy and religions and, uh, and all of this. And that's, that's never been what I said. It, it's not that onerous. It, it's for a reasonable person, which is the legal definition, an average person, average intelligent. This is what David likes, right? The, the guy sitting in the pew or in the bar drinking a beer, um, 
they got to do the best they can. Um, and, and yeah, God will reveal the truth to them in time. So yeah, if the point to David's point is if you don't have 100% certainty, then there's always that inherent doubt. You should always check out what's going on. Maybe I gave a new argument, a nuanced new argument that I, that I'm not aware of anybody providing with the messianic prophecy thing. I just invented it. Uh, here's a, a unique take um, that might work. So maybe five years from now, uh, Joyce or Robert Parr or something listened to the show and they actually t- did the work on that and crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, which I didn't do in that four-part series, and they present it five years from now. It, you should be checking and, oh, hey, there's a new argument. You know, like maybe once a year or every once every two years, you kind of do a little Google search to see what's new in the field of apologetics for a couple weeks or something just to see what's going on. And, it, oh, you encounter new evidence. Let me evaluate this. Is it good or not? Or maybe you go back to the resurrection and, oh, there's a new item of evidence now or something, or a new form of argument. Uh, okay, I'll be I'll study that for a little bit and look into that. Um, so yeah, that, that's my only take there, but yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Um, that, that leads into my last point, which I don't think David has any notes on or, or wants to address or something, but this is really my impassioned plea that, that I'm most passionate about is actually, I'm not going to respond to the argument from ignorance or something. I think I did that already, but I've developed an approach, an 11 premise argument that I'm very proud of. I think I've gone above and beyond anyone I've seen in terms of developing a consistent way, a systematic way to evaluate other religions. Um, I, I hope to fill out those premises uh, as as a book, a very large book or, or series of books or something, and or put it up online for free for people to check out, where I, I detail the, the case for each premise and provide the warrant as to why I think they're sound. Um, but it, it'll compare, it's an exercise in comparative religions too. It, you know, it'll look at some evidence for Hinduism or Buddhism for, and compare that to what we have with Christianity and show that Christianity comes on top. Um, my criteria for identifying uh, a G-Belief authenticating event is, is something that I'm very proud of. I think I've gone beyond, slightly beyond what I've seen. You know, most people just saying, okay, well, it's an extraordinary event or improbable according to natural law and it's a religious context. So I, I've fleshed out what those criteria mean a little bit more um, in ways that, you know, with my notion of subsumability, I, I don't think um, anyone's really mentioned that that I've seen from Christian philosophers or atheist philosophers and that sort of thing. So yeah, that I'm going to put this in the attachment, um, you know, in skeleton format. So just listing out my premises, uh, as well as premise eight, my criteria. But that's something I, I'm really proud of. I, I've come up with a systematic way that could be helpful for us, uh, and and should be acceptable to skeptics. At least if you accept the skeptical version from the argument of confusion, or what I call undue confusion then you should be on board with me in, in this argument as well and, and think that there's something here. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I wanted to, to leave you guys with. Um, I, I, thank every, I thank the audience for sticking with me and David throughout the season. Um, even when I've had uh, some, some 
interesting back and forths with you guys in the comments, I have appreciated. Um, even when I agree or disagree uh, with the feedback I've gotten, I have tried my best here to consider it and give a, a response and try my best to show that I'm engaging uh, with what the other side has to say. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the, the thing that you're going to put out, uh, Dale, is that the full 280 pages or are you, oh, no, do no. you have a condensed version? Yeah, my, I'm just putting out the condensed version. So that was on the shroud that you're talking about. I'm, I'm not, um, that's just one chapter in the, yeah. that's premise 11. It was I, a 280 I'm, page chapter. <laughs> I was thinking you might want to, you might want to shrink it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see what I can do. First, first I got to finish everything in full that I want to say, and then I'll maybe edit it down or something, but yeah, it'll be years before. But, but, uh, what I'm going to be doing is, is just the premises of my art. So premise number, premise number one, God exists. Uh, that's going to be an entire chapter in, in my, my book. That's very detailed yeah. in that, but I just have the list premise one, God exists. I don't have sure. my arguments or reasons written up. And, um, and but, it, and it's a, and it's going to be, uh, good. I, I look forward to it. Uh, I think it is a good thing that you have done this work. Um, I've, you know, as, as alluded to here just now, I've seen uh, a bit of it. Um, probably the one, the chapter that I would be least interested in. Um, and you're talking about, I mean, you call it a book. You, you're not you're not writing a book. You're writing um, you're writing a compendium. <laughs> this is this is a you know a set of volumes uh, on something. You know. Um, if if this were a college dissertation, it would be rejected for being too long. They would, they would tell oh, you to yeah. narrow it down. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no, this, yeah, this is going to be huge. But it's 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 my I, I don't know. I see it as sort of my legacy. Like this is something I can contribute, and maybe it's not fully appreciated while I'm alive. But maybe who knows, two hundred years from now or something. Someone might see value in it. In in it's take how you two hundred years to finish it. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a lot it. of writing, man. So well, some so. premises are. I mean, like one of the premises is there's religious confusion. I mean, I I could write that in a paragraph. So like, yeah, there are a couple. There are there are a few of the premises that are going to take me a long time, like the God exists one or the or the evidences, but. Yeah, others will be shorter, hopefully. Yeah. So. I'm look. I'm with you. I'm on your side uh, here. So um, let me know when you get uh, more of that in a form that, <coughs> excuse me, that that audiences can digest. Uh, and you know, well, I I don't mind helping you uh, distribute that. Um, I I like writing, <laughs> so right, yeah. writing writing's good stuff. And just uh, so the audience knows, uh, my book Red Letters, which is short as opposed to long, um, probably 150 pages okay. and, uh, of formatted pages, not not very long at all. Uh, uh, easy read. Um, that's that's been done for a long time. I've just been picking at the editing part of it, and editing is a thing that you can do forever. You, you're never really done editing a book, and I've got to at some point just call it 
um, which I am not ready to do yet. So, but when that comes out at some point, you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> okay. So there will, there will be a version of this there that might be a Patreon version. There might be something that goes along with that. Uh, I thought about, uh, doing a, uh, a special podcast on, on this subject of, uh, Jesus, the things that Jesus taught and said, and whether it was really whether it was really a good teacher or not. Red letters. Uh, the full name of this project is Red Letters: The Worst uh, Ethical and Practical Teachings in History. Uh, speaking of the teachings of Jesus, and just taking a deep dive, a look at a, a layman's look uh, at what Jesus actually said what he actually taught. In fact, Helen Painter from last week has agreed to come on next season and um, have a full-on debate uh, on this subject. And so that's something that I hope happens. But that is a, that's a project that will come out at some point. And you know, the standalone version of the book will cost probably three bucks, something like that. So start saving now. <laughs> Work it over, I hope there are plenty of people itching to support me. Um, you know, that would be, that'd be nice because mm -hmm. uh, microphones aren't free. Um, and dog food isn't free. So, <laughs> no, I think you built up a sufficient core of evidence. Audience that's loyal to you. Even when that, oh, what was his name, Reza or Reza, uh, came out giving his advice. I think you had quite a quite a number of people uh, backing you up. So yeah. Well, but also Reza was an ass. So I mean, it was <laughs> Reza wasn't just some guy who didn't like me. I can. I mean, people uh, okay. don't. That's that's okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> even, even in your economy of uh, manners, I don't, I don't think that Reza would be someone that you'd be having a beer with. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but you know, it's fun to find those people from time to time. I'm glad they don't know where my real address is, but <laughs> but that's okay. You uh, you run into those, but. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, thank you for supporting me, Lisa. Uh, please don't don't go against me. I I, I appreciate all my fans. <laughs> thank you for supporting me. Please don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I'm, I'm scared of him, not Kara. But, uh, <laughs> well, that makes all of us. So. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, we so we we thought we had seen the crazy, but right at the end, <laughs> and and you thought that you were persecuted, my friend. No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was. I have to admit, I was impressed with the way you you handled that. You didn't get a. You didn't make the mistakes that I sometimes do. No, uh, it's not. Look, it's just hate mail. But it wouldn't be my first piece of hate mail. So. All right. Uh, <laughs> you get used to it after a while. So. Yeah. So at any rate, it has been. Um, it's been a delight. Uh, yes, this this episode. It's probably going four hours. So what the listener doesn't know is we've had to we've had to stop at least once. We've got a lot of audio problems that we're having to edit out and try not to lose some of the conversation. But I could cut out an hour of conversation. This podcast would still have been too long. So Tara, if you walked your dog through this entire podcast, take your dog to the vet. <laughs> it's too long. Their little legs can't handle this. <laughs> Don't do that to them. 
Um, and um, out with a going out with a bang. There was a lot, a lot of stuff that we covered. So I'm, I'm sure some of them, like Darren, will be like, "Yay! It's I wanted five hours." <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Screw you, people. <laughs> this is yeah, this has I, been I, awful. I, just, I haven't eaten at all today, no. so. <laughs> and I've got stuff to do today that I don't even know if I've got time to do now. So this has been. Uh, disruptive to say the least but one of the one of the things that we decided to do was to take the leash off and uh just just let it go whatever we got just say it and to that end i will make my final plea although i usually give the respondent the last word um which is uh look this is not just um mental masturbation um, I mean, it is that, to be sure, but it's not just that. There's there's more here. Um, now, Dale thinks that your immortal soul is at stake, so he would agree that there's more going on here. I think the one life that you have to live is at stake here. And so um, I think that you should be very careful and guard yourself against philosophies and worldviews and religions that make you the villain in your story. You are not the villain in your story. You are not broken. You're not diseased with, with some kind of sin miasma. You are fully human. Not only human, fully human, gloriously human. And hey, there are always things that we can improve. So if you drink too much, cut it out. You know, if you've got a drug problem, seek help. There's help. Uh, suffering from depression, uh, overeating, bad cholesterol. You know, there are things that, that you can do, things that we can do. Maybe you've got a bad temper and you need some anger management. You know what? That doesn't make you a bad human. It makes you a human. Uh, and so don't get down on yourself by things that other people over centuries have called human imperfections and that make you somehow subhuman or less than what you should be. You're exactly where you are, and that's exactly where you should be. And I'm glad to have you sharing this planet with me. Was that to me? Oh, thank you. <laughs> actually, actually, not to you. Um, oh. <laughs> you, you, I tolerate have, uh, sharing the planet with. Um, no, for 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 everyone though. Um, yeah. These are these are serious matters, and um, so I don't I don't want you taken in by uh, vain or empty philosophies that somehow suggest you are less than what you ought to be. Um, so I, I just want to leave it there and, uh, thank the audience for giving us a listen next week. We have whatever it is you do with your time <laughs> because Dale and I will not be doing this next week. Um, at some point there will probably be some other stuff that shows up in the podcast feed. When Dale and I get bored, we'll do something. We'll put it in. We'll put something in there. But for now, season one is over. Uh, I don't know when season two will begin, probably not before the fall. Um, we will give you updates, uh, probably over on the unbelievable board. Um, 
and I think that's I think that's all we've got. Dale, anything else? Um, yeah, just yeah. I guess uh, next couple of weeks, as I said, I'm going on the Right to Reason podcast to to discuss the Abraham test as well as the problem of evil in general. Um, so. I'll try to record that on my end and, and put that up for people to listen to. Uh, he doesn't have a paywall, so you'll be able to hear the full thing. Um, that's that's June 1st. We're recording that. So sometime after that, it'll be up. Okay. And so there's nothing else to say except goodbye, everybody. All right. Goodbye, everyone.